This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing, they are all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting stronger fingers, and I want to make sure I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons, so I take supercharged collagen every day. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, recording another intro from my little balcony here in Switzerland. And my guest today on the podcast is Leo Holding. If you liked my episodes with Robbie Phillips, Tommy Caldwell, Alex Honnold, I think you will love this one. Leo is a total badass. He's one of the greatest adventure climbers ever. He's climbed Everest. He's put up a hard free route on El Capitan, The Prophet. We talked about that one in this interview. He's put up new routes in the Amazon rainforest and in the remote regions of Antarctica, places that literally you cannot get to without a month-long journey across a frozen continent. This guy has done so many badass things. He loves adventure. It was really fun to hear how he thinks about that. And it was fun to hear what he's up to these days. He's got kids, and he's doing some pretty badass stuff with his family, with his wife and two kids. If you are a parent or thinking of becoming a parent and thinking that becoming a parent will end your climbing days or your adventure days, this guy is here to show you that you can totally do rad stuff with a family and little kiddos. Anyway, super fun episode. Leo's a great storyteller and I hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation with badass adventure climber, Leo Holding. That's a cool room. I like the bookshelf in the back. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's like an attic nice. office. Hi. This is my wife, Jess. Nice to meet you. In a van. I mean, yeah, this is my van. Welcome. This is my little, oh, very cool. my little home on wheels, my little studio. Yep. So are you, are you at home or are you on the road? Um, I live on the road full time right now. So I am in Utah, um, actually recording this in a parking lot. So sweet. Yeah. I'm away from home. <laughs> yeah. Is this your house in the UK? In the Lake District? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame uh, in the daylight, right out that window. Show them the floor right now. No, oh, I'll show them in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Are you prepping for a trip? Oh, what is yeah. that? It's amazing. I'll show you probably the uh this is uh can you see that and get rid of that? I can't. Yeah, I can see it. I can't tell quite what it is. What is that? 
food so food. check it out that, yeah. that's uh six man days of food right there <laughs> and you can see it uh-huh all that to my amazement fits into one of those bear boxes mm. rising like i mean just it's like i'm standing on it to get it in there <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so um so i'll go what are you prepping for uh, I hope, I think we're going back to, uh, um, Baffin Island. Nice. If I can get my act together. Well, I just about have done, but I had to, um, if you get your act together in time, you can get your stuff snowmobiled much closer to the peak from only do. Mm-hmm. But you have to ship it out there in the spring. And then one of the local Inuit dudes, outfitted dudes can snowmobile it much closer but i thought that you could do that in may which i'm pretty sure you could 10 years ago <laughs> okay and then i spoke to the guy like two weeks ago and he's like no bro you need to get it here like april oh shit and flying stuff up there is um takes time you know to ship it from the uk to the middle of nowhere in baffin island it's like minimum two weeks expedited shipping is like the economy is a month um mm. And so, like, two weeks ago, I was like, I spoke to the guy, and I was like, okay, so if I get my shit together, I can possibly do this, but it's kind of ambitious to pack everything for a fairly major expedition while climbing in the middle of nowhere for over a month Mm -hmm. in two weeks, alongside (laughs) everything else that you've already got going on. Um, But I think i think i'm gonna pull it off nice i I was up till 3 a.m this morning uh packing all the climbing gear going through the aid rack i never i never i'm not really friends with my aid rack Mm. i've taken this bag of hardware all around the world and i hardly ever use it but when you do need it even if it's just for a couple of pitches you know you need it and and you can't just bring like a few pegs and a few blade. You need like a fairly comprehensive, not like a full on LCAT wall rack, but you know, maybe a quarter of that, which is a lot. It's like 10 kilos more, 15 kilos of ironware. Mm. And I hardly ever use it, but you need it. And I had to dig all that out last night and I was looking at all the beaks and blades <laughs> and oh God, how many of these should I bring? And I think placed about five copperheads in my life but i always end up with like 10 of them on the rack (laughs) hammers and chisels and all this you know this heavy stuff that you don't you often don't use because if you you know obviously we're always trying to free climb right sometimes you have to uh you have to aid climb features to you know start figuring it out Mm -hmm. anyway anyway it's all it's all good do you enjoy the logistics side of these adventures? I mean, you've signed yourself up for a life of lots of logistics and planning. Do you enjoy that side of it or is just or is it just the necessary evil to get to the actual thing? No, I don't I quite enjoy the logistics. It's it's a bit rushed this time. Um the on other occasions when you've got loads of time, I really enjoy it because you can really take your time and geek out on the gear and refine your systems and you know, like that, for example, it's it's harder than you would imagine the food for an expedition. Right now, I've got 35 days worth of food for three people here. So that's 100, 
five Mondays of food. So, you know, that's food for one person for over three months. Like, wow. think about that. You know, think all everything that you're going to consume with no chance of resupply for, for one person for three months or three people for one month, a bit more. And it, it's a lot. You know, you've got to really like make sure you you don't screw it up because um, you can't you can't resupply. It's like game over if you run out of whatever toilet roll or or you get the calorific intake wrong. I'm a bit gripped this time. I think. I'm pretty good with low amounts of food, but one of the guys, actually Wilson, you know Wilson. Oh, yeah. He's an eater. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a bit worried he's going to get tweaky on these rations. We've got like 3,000 calories coming in at just under 700 grams, which is good. That's like really good. Uh, Not all non-perishable food. Um, But this time it's, it's space is as critical as weight normally it's just weight but Mm. annoyingly because it's a national park and in canadian national parks to have a cache you've got to um you've got a bear container everything Mm. uh so and you can't buy bear containers in the uk so i've just had all those things (laughs) over from the states and i have to ship them back to greenland (laughs) yeah and then i have to ship them back and I realized that um, I didn't end ordered enough, but oh my God, Amazon. No wonder it's taken over the world. Four days, man. <laughs> like, you literally cannot buy bear containers in Europe, never mind the UK. And uh, and I was stressing, and a lot of, you know, like backcountry.com and a lot of the really good stores, they don't ship to the UK. Amazon.com had them. Four days later, they arrived at my house. <laughs> Wow. I ordered these on Monday. Wow. And they arrived today. And they were like, by the time there was a bit of shipping and import duty, they ended up costing well, it was a thousand bucks for eight. And they're like they're like 90 bucks in REI, you know. So mm. they've ended up costing like 25% more. But that's pretty damn good. That's <laughs> pretty good. For shipping them across the ocean. Yeah, that's yeah, incredible. <laughs> Quick question about the food. When you're when you're planning food for, you know, this many people for this long, do you think at all about uh macronutrients, micronutrients, any of that stuff, or is it just calories, easy, light calories, perishable or non-perishable? Uh no, it, it depends on the trip. Um, like the, the, on polar trips, yeah, definitely you think about it in more detail, particularly fat. And protein intake um and fat's the hardest one actually because mm. um, calories it's heavy you can really get yeah because sugar is the easiest way to get calories obviously and that just doesn't work um it's not what you need at all uh so yeah and, and especially on polar trips when it's really cold and you're out for multiple months it becomes really important and you sometimes take supplements as well um you know vitamins and electrolytes and um protein drinks and all that kind of stuff but this is only a month which is quite long and it does change you know when when you're out for like a weekend it doesn't matter what you do if you're out for a week then again it doesn't really matter if you're nutrient deficient or you haven't got enough fat for a week but once you start getting into months it it really does and once you get into multiple months when you get into like two three month expeditions you really have to consider that in more detail um to be honest, 
this time it's not that well considered because uh, it's been such a rush. But thankfully, I have done this enough times before, so I've got a vague idea of you know what works and what doesn't. Um, yeah, I think we're all right. Look, this is he's grabbing something. These are two of my little secrets. It's uh, <laughs> this is pepper army, which is like salami, but it's packaged in single servings. Mm. And it's got a really long sell-by date. Like that's good until like October, November. It doesn't need refrigerating, and it's it's pre-rationed, mm. so you don't need to, you know, because you you've got to be careful on a long trip that you make sure you, you know you don't eat all the good stuff at the start of the trip. So it's sure. much easier to have everything in single serving. And then this is Parmesan cheese. In oh wow, nice single serving things. You're supposed to keep it cold, but. Um, but it's again, that's like an October sell-by date. Hard cheese is really good. So that's that's your fat. It's fat's the hardest thing to get in uh, in quantities. Um, yeah, and again, you know, so you've got a few of these, a few bars, bits of chocolate, and then these are good. These are the uh, this is the Norwegian brand of um, of, of freeze-dried food. It's called Real Termat. And it's it's really good. It's it's one of the best of. Uh, it's like a completely different league to Mountain House and the stuff. You know the standard freeze dried stuff. It's actually pretty good if you get the knack of rehydrating it and have precisely the right amount of water and let it cook for like three times longer than it says and keep it warm. You put it down your jacket, or even better, you take it out of the packet and you cook it in a pan. Um, it's actually pretty good with you know a little bit of chimichurri sauce. Yep. So <laughs> I'm just kind of sitting here marveling at the amount of uh, beta knowledge that you have amassed over your lifetime of, of adventure climbing. You know, for me, it's like I know lots of tricks about projecting boulder problems and sport routes and like the minutia of actually the rock climbing, which of course you have that too. But then th thinking about things on all these other levels and all the knowledge about, uh, yeah, tastiest food and, and all that sort of stuff. It's just kind of mind-blowing. It's great. I do dig it, man. I really um, enjoy being uh, out there. And when you get really far out, what I particularly like is when you have a base camp that's relatively comfortable, somewhere extremely inaccessible. So you just have this little bastion that's kind of safe and comfortable, relatively speaking. Um, and then you can launch your, your projects from there. And there's just something special about being far away. And I really like that kind of uh, that commitment that comes with somewhere basically that you can't get to by road where there's no vehicle access. You just we're so dependent on vehicles and they're wonderful. You know, you, you just take for granted how many crash pads and ropes and all the rest of it that you can fit in a vehicle and then you can jump in the car and go to the store and buy some more stuff. But when you take that out the equation and you've got like no hydrocarbon support on your mission, you just, you know, you just walk in and all the stuff you're going to need. And like I say, once you start getting into weeks and months, you know, just tiny little things like, you know, moisturizer, hand cream, the first aid kit, but not, not like the life-saving stuff, just the little things like, I've had it, expeditions can be ruined by something as simple as chapped lips, mm. um, you know, or a blister. If if it starts to get really severe, which living outside these things can, um, it can sink your ship. Whereas if you've got whatever hydrocortisone cream or some lip balm or even something as simple as 
a fresh pair of socks or some soap that you so you can wash your socks it can change it from being like a hellish experience to to quite a heavenly one really <laughs> it's awesome man i love it i'm already recording i i have all these i have all these notes in front of me ideas for how to kick off the conversation and then of course with you I don't need any of them. It's just, you're just so easy to talk to. <laughs> it's really fun. Who's, uh, who's coming along aside from Wilson? Who's the third on this adventure? And what is the mission? Do you have something picked out or what do you like to when do? When is this going to go out, by the way? Have you got a transmission? Uh, this, this? Is, this is quite a ways out. This is probably, um, we're looking at like end of April or May even. This might even be mid-May. Let me see. I can give you an exact date actually. Um, because I've got a little bit of an issue. <laughs> okay. Um, which may or may not matter, but basically, um, we're going back to Mount Asgard where I went in 2009 and we tried to free climb the Northwest face of the North tower of Mount Asgard, which is one of the proudest faces in the world, in my opinion. Um, but we got utterly shut down and failed miserably to free climb it. We did about half, a bit less than half. You guys had pretty rough weather, right? Yeah, yeah. We were there too late in the season. I, I made a major mistake. That was the first big expedition I organized. Mm. And uh, we arrived on the 1st of August, which in my mind is, you know, midsummer. Um, and we stayed for a month. So we were there for the month of August. And, and I assumed that, you know, where I live at this latitude at 54 degrees north, that's kind of the warmest month uh, 67 degrees north in just inside the arctic circle where asgard is that's late summer mm. slash autumn i remember when we arrived there our inuit outfitter a guy called charlie he's like hey you guys pretty late huh and i was like oh are we i didn't it's the first of august that's the middle of summer isn't it <laughs> and I remember him saying, he was like, oh, August 20, man, shit changes around here. And sure enough, that was when we got hit by like a, what I would describe as a, as a winter storm, you wow. know, it was heavy snow and ice and wind and really seriously cold. Like the, the water bottles were freezing solid within a few hours and all the ropes were covered in like two inches of half frost. And, you know, it was, it was a full winter conditions. And that was on the 20th of August. And we weren't, we weren't prepared for it. We weren't, we didn't have winter gear, you know, we didn't have proper gloves and stuff. I was expecting it to be summery. Mm. Um, so we got totally spanked. Um, so this time we're going in June, which is the, you know, the, the Arctic summer is June, July, and maybe the first part of August. So we're going much earlier in the season um, in the hope of better weather. Um, however, last time I was there, we base jumped off the top and then made a successful film about it. Um, and base jumping is not allowed in Canadian national parks, which I didn't know until just before the trip. Okay. And then we, I did, I did find out just before the trip and I thought, Oh, well, you know, we might not even get to jump anyway. We had permission for the skydive. This was the trip, the Asgard project where we skydived in, which mm. was amazing. Like, I don't, I don't know of anyone else who's ever done that before to, start a, a long expedition by legitimately skydiving out. You know, you could do it for fun somewhere that you could walk to or where you're flying a helicopter to anyway, but out of an aircraft with no landing strip to go and fully uh, drop in, which we did. And we had permission for that. 
but we didn't have permission for the base jump. Um, and then we did end up base jumping because when we finally got to the top of the wall, um, the, the weather improved and it was like meant to be. A big snowy owl came and swooped right past us on the summit. Oh, no way. And just like came over Stanley and I and went off in exactly the direction that we were going to launch our wingsuits. So we did. Um, and obviously no one's going to know. It'd be super easy not to get busted jumping Mount Asgard. Um, unless, of course, you put it in a film. <laughs> and then that film is quite successful and it like won an award at the Banff Martin Festival and all that. Parks Canada are a sponsor of the Banff oh, Martin man. Festival. <laughs> and, and it went on the tour, you know, Banff do that massive tour and the film went on the tour and then exactly two <laughs> years afterwards, I got uh, actually Stanley who used to live just outside Yosemite. One of the park rangers from Yosemite came, knocked on Stanley's trainer, trailer, handed him to his hand a citation with a court summons uh, to go to court appearance in Callaway. And I got one through the post, um, which I dealt with. It was a headache and we had to get a lawyer up there and we had a court hearing and everything. And But we we did it. We dealt with it all. And I apologized and we paid. It was actually wasn't even a fine. It was like a donation to a. Um, so we got a ticket and we apologized and they were all very Canadian and nice about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that was like 10 years ago, something like that. It was 2009, so more. It was yeah, 12 years ago. Um, and I haven't been back since. I haven't been back to uh, Baffin Island since, and I haven't been – I have been to America. Anyway, I'm, I'm right now, this big cash that I'm sending out, I'm, you need a permit, and I'm dealing with the National Park at the moment, but I've been doing it all – without declaring who I am to <laughs> because I <see. laughs> I, I'm a bit paranoid that if they think, oh, it's that dickhead that <laughs> came and, like, you know, made a film breaking the law in our national park, and they might think he's going to be sending his base rigs in in this cache, mm. so you think he's going to sneak past us, which I'm not. I quit base jumping in 2013 when Stanley died. Mm. Um Anyway, so I might just be being paranoid, but sometimes like a little bit of paranoia can can help. <laughs> so, yeah, seem, uh, seems justified paranoia. <laughs> so well, <laughs> I guess by the time this goes, I should be okay because I, I think I'm going to do the permit in uh, in Waldo's name and then I won't <laughs> kind of disclose that it's me again until we arrive because, you, you know, you need to register and everything. Yeah. And and I don't think there should be any problem because, you know, we it was a fair cop. We went to court. We paid the fine. We pleaded guilty. We explained ourselves. I made the apologies, although that didn't go that well. I I, I spoke at um, the BAM Festival after we'd dealt with the court case. And one of the uh, one of the kind of terms of um, of the court was to make a public apology Um and so at Banff in the like main event, which is a big theater, you know, it's like a fifteen hundred person theater. I put a picture of the the citation up with the Parks Canada and made a public apology, and everybody laughed, <laughs> which, which wasn't it wasn't supposed to be a joke, you know. It was kind of like part of the plea. But, yeah, um, but fifteen hundred people thought it was hilarious because I'd just shown the, like money shot of wingsuiting off the top. <laughs> So anyway, that's uh, cla- <laughs> that's classic. Yeah.
So I'm a bit paranoid that you're going to blow my cover if this goes out too early. Well, let's just stay in touch. This is at least two months out. How about that? It'll be mid-May yeah, at the that soonest. Be fine. Okay. I'll, I'll touch base with you, though. Be in by then. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so it's you, and, <laughs> it's you and Wilson and Waldo then? Going back yeah, to Asgard? Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah, and it's sweet. No, no film crew. Um, and yeah, relatively lightweight expedition. We still got a bunch of stuff because it's a, it's a major wall climb. You know, it's like right side of El Cap style. Mm. It's pretty featured though. The granite's definitely more featured than El Cap. And I do remember thinking, we, I mean, we could definitely have free climbed a lot more. I'm not sure it'll go 100% free. So it's been real... Well, for like 10 years, I've been like, do I really want to go back and try again when it might only go 90% free? Another major expedition, a lot of time, energy, money to to do. We, we, it wasn't even a new route. We did the second descent of a of a, an established route called the Nookshuk that these Swiss guys put up in the mid-90s. And now I'm going to go back and try it again. And there's a chance. And as you know, it's you know, there's no kind of in-between. It's either 100% free mm. or it's not a free route. Mm-hmm. Um However, what I've decided is it's an amazing place. Uh, Waldo and Wilson are great partners and good friends. So we'll have a blast up there, even if we don't manage to to free it all. We might end up looking at a different line, but I can't see why we would conclude anything differently this time. You know, the reason we went, we attempted that line last time is because it looked like the most free climbable on that face. Mm. Um, We've also got the option of some light and fast stuff. There's a load of other features in the region, particularly the other side of Asgard. is It's really like a mountain of two halves. You know, the, the east side of the mass of the mountain where the Scott route is, is like Alpine Crag in big, massive, like over 4,000 feet. Uh, but, you know, kind of 5.11-ish. And in the sun, um, maybe mm. 5.12, it's featured and it's sunny and it's nice. And part of me is like, why don't we just do that? And you, you don't need to bring all the heavy shit. You don't need all the hard, you know, all the ironmongery and port ledges and all that nonsense. And one day I think, yeah, let's just do that. We'll just go light and fast and, you know, do a couple of hundred pitches of granite, half of them quite possibly new. Or do you go heavy and hard and like man up and get on one of the proudest faces in the world that is yet to be free climbed? Um, and it's shady and it's cold and it's hard and it's slow. And, you know, we were doing like two pitches a day just to, it was just to aid climb only two pitches. They weren't even long pitches, you know, 40, 50 meters taking five or six hours on lead, like, you know, new wave, a three, a three plus slow. And that's before you've even set about trying to free climb it. And why would, why would I want to go through that again? But in the end, it's like, you know, because that's the challenge right it's so proud it's so steep and clean and it'd be kind of like going to yosemite and going i know let's just go free climbing maybe you know climb the west butt or on the east butt or maybe sneak up whatever the northwest face of half dome or like not the dome wall Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. um so it's a bit like that and uh and we've decided that you know, we'll, we'll at least we'll have the option of going heavy and hard, and we'll see. We'll see what the weather's like, and we'll see what the if if the wall speaks to us. And um, yeah, that's the plan. Mm. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I'm gonna take a bunch of steps back, and then I'm curious. 
Um, well, yeah, I have so many questions for you. I have a whole outline, probably way too much stuff on it. But I just watched your House of the Gods film. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that um, that adventure later in the Amazon rainforest and the climb that you did. Uh, you had like a nice kind of, you know, bio at the start of that film talking about your early life in climbing. I'm curious, I, I think of you as the consummate adventurer in climbing, like your Instagram your Instagram cover photo is perfect. It looks like an adventure, like an Arctic explorer from the 1850s or something like that. I'm like, yes, this is exactly who this guy is. What was the first spark that led you to I this Mountain, life? By the way, what's that? There's a guy, Norwegian explorer, who's the uh, he was like the grandfather of uh, Norwegian polar exploration. The guy that came before, yeah, Nansen and Scott. He's called he's called Fridjof Nansen. He's pretty famous in Norway, and there's a famous photo of him. And he looks exactly like that's me. I, <laughs> that's not you. No, it is me. It is. Oh, me. it is you. Okay, it's me at the end of uh, the Spectre expedition, which was like a two-month big gnarly Antarctic trip. And literally at the airport in Heathrow Airport, when I got home, I went into the barber shop right there with a picture of Nansen. I was like, "Do that." <laughs> <laughs> And then I got home and my wife took that photograph in uh, in our <laughs> living room. It's not like a studio shot or anything. Oh, it's and, perfect. And check it out. It's like, it's an uncanny resemblance. <laughs> it's on my Instagram feed, actually. If you go down a bit, the, the two photos side by side. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'll find it. I'll find it and link to it for people so it's easier to find in the show notes. Um, but yeah, what was the what was the first spark for you? What what led you to this life of adventure? Was there a moment or a climb early on that sparked what your life could be? I wrote a book last year, um, my first book. It's an autobiography. So um, so I guess I really kind of gave this stuff some thought and kind of distilled it down. And uh, it's quite a cathartic process, actually. Just you know, just to that what put put you where you are right now what were the key events moments people things and when you write a book it's it's 20 chapters approximately 5000 words each that's 100000 words sounds like a lot but it's not 5000 words is not that much whenever i write a trip report you know you have to condense it to get it into 5000 words you've only got 20 things that you can talk about that have to like have a cohesive and interesting narrative arc to say what brought you to this point? So in answer to your question, I did think about this quite a lot. And probably the first thing was actually before I was born, which was my mother and father um, are from a little bit further south in England, a place called Lancashire, which was a pretty rough place to be in the 1970s. It was, there used to be all these big cotton mills there. And, um, and then they all closed down in the 60s. And in the 70s, you know, Britain had a really bad decade. It was a real like urban decline the town where they lived was a real ghetto you know it really went um all the industry left and it was every literally the, the whole city was black from the the soot from the old mills it, and it really was a deprived place and um and a friend of my dad's um overdosed on heroin uh having just been kicked out of the house that my mum and dad lived in with my sister, who's six years older when she was a baby. And my dad was like, no, you can't do that here, you know, go away. And um, and he died. And uh, and so my mum and dad were like, we need to get out of here. You know, you, you live in these tiny little two up, two down terraced houses. Um, it's like a, you can almost imagine it, you know, these long streets of tiny little houses that, 
you know, they're not much bigger than your average kind of Colorado garage um, and really pretty deprived at that time. So anyway, they upped sticks and moved to actually not very far away from where I'm sitting right now in a, in a beautiful area called uh, in, in Cumbria. It's only about an hour up the road, but it's a different world. And, um, and it's on the edge of a national park called the Lake District. And it is a rural farming community. And we moved into this big falling down, like semi-derelict old farmhouse where I grew up which I loved because it was in this amazing adventure playground just on the edge of this national park with trees and fields and rivers and uh, big stone bridges and hay barns and all these amazing, and I just used to play out constantly. So I've had an adventurous spirit since I was really young, Mm. you know, all this stuff's fresh in mind because I just wrote about it. I remember my mum tells the story of, I I asked her if I could go and visit my friend and, um, and she said, yeah, no problem. Assuming I meant the friend who lived next door. And it was this other friend who lived two miles away. Um, and so I went to see him. And uh, and then after a couple of hours, she was like, where's Leo? She came to find me. I was three. <laughs> and I, I was three years old. And I and I went to visit my friend who lived two miles away through the fields or down the lane. And they found me wow. by the side of the road on the way. Like, you know, what's the issue? Um, <laughs> That's so, incredible. Yeah, I've always had this kind of adventurous spark. And then having access to, to you know, uh, outdoor activities. And my dad was quite an adventurous spirit too. And not a rock climber, um, like, a you know, a hill walker uh, into mountain biking in the very early days of when it arrived in the UK in the 80s. And, um, and into like scrambling, you know, which is what we call kind of fourth, fifth class terrain where you don't really need a rope, but you, it's definitely not hiking. And so we always did a bit of that. And then it was a friend of his who was an actual rock climber um, who got us into it. Was that uh, was that the old man of Hoy? Was that the friend that took you up the old man of Hoy? Yeah, exactly. So it was so. a guy called Malcolm Cundy. His nickname was Pike. And um, we went out a bit with him. And then really early on, uh, I guess he could see that I had some potential, had a talent. Uh, and... Within six months of starting climbing, we did the Old Man of Hoy, which is this awesome adventure climb. It's kind of like it's it's probably five nine, maybe ten minus, but it's proud. You know, it's a it's a four hundred fifty foot high sea sea stack, a sandstone tower that sticks up out of the sea in a really remote part of the Orkney Islands in the northeast of Scotland, and it's it's sick. You know, it wouldn't look out of place in Moab. It's a really mm. impressive thing, and it's actually quite easy. It's probably five nine. Um, but there's only one bit of five, nine, the rest of it's like five, six, mm. but, um, but you, it's not normally the kind of thing you'd take someone on who's only just started climbing when they're a little kid, but Malcolm was like a typical, you know, old school climber. Like he'd been climbing his whole life. He'd been hanging out in Chamonix in the sixties and seventies and the same kind of vibe that, you know, that, that era of real kind of pre dirt bags that, committed the life to um to climbing and uh and anyway then we went and we did it the old man of hoy and it, and that was the one that really kind of it blew my mind the the whole experience that it was like a mini expedition to go up there and then the climb itself was really full-on you know it's 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 really the crooked pitch is really overhanging you go through this like bottomless chimney mm. it's blowing a hoolie you know that it's raining the seas <laughs> crashing below you the rocks really soft sandy sandstone 
the things covered in these giant seagulls called fulmars, which are massive. You know, they're like wingspan is like three, three and a half feet and they can projectile vomit. With, it's like a defense mechanism and it's surprisingly accurate with surprising range. They can hit you from about 15 feet away with this absolutely <laughs> oh disgusting fish bile vomit. Yeah. When that happened, like three quarters of the way up, I just thought this is the best thing ever. Like, <laughs> as if that just happened, you know, like this, wow. like something out of an Indiana Jones movie. Um, <laughs> and there was a guy that the there was another guy, Malcolm, and this other chap called Guy Lee, who used to climb a lot with Doug Scott, one of the, you know, one of the legends of British mountaineering, did loads of amazing stuff in the Himalayas, the Scott route on Mount Asgard. He did the first ascent of back in the seventies, and um, and Guy told me all these stories about big wall climbing about Baffin Island. Guy was in Baffin Island in the seventies. He'd been in Yosemite. He'd climbed El Cap, and it was as much like talking to him for the for the kind of week long trip as the climb itself that I just that really gave me the bug mm. that really blew my mind. That just the thought of like. I'd never heard of Yosemite. I didn't know that you could camp on cliffs or that these places existed, which were just so utterly mind blowing that they made the old man of Hoya look like a like a kid's playground. Mm. And uh, and I just thought, wow, this is so sick. This is I kind of knew there and then what I wanted to do with my life. I I didn't ever suspect that I would make a profession of it or that I'd become well known and um, and that it would lead to all these other things. But I definitely knew very early in life, like what I wanted to do. I was actually going to ask you that. So you're an 11 year old kid hearing all these stories. You have these grand ideas of what your life could become. How has your life turned out compared to how you imagined it as a kid? Good question. Um, way better. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of bang on track, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I didn't actually, I never planned to have a family. That was definitely Jessica, mm. my wife, who you just met. That was her influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been, I, I sometimes have to pinch myself. You know, I, I must have hit every branch when I fell out of the lucky tree. It's, <laughs> it's been it's been an amazing life of, of adventure. And I'm 42 now. And uh, um, so, I'm, you know, it's still plenty of time to go. My kids are still, you know, they're six and nine. And yeah, sometimes like when I was writing the book, I, I I found it really challenging to write, but I did get into it for sometimes. And I found myself like laughing out loud, just thinking, holy shit, this is this is real. You know, it kind of reads a bit like a script, you know, like a movie. <laughs> yeah. All this stuff actually happened. And, uh, <laughs> That's cool. And there's a lot of it. Um, and, you know, it was good timing that I think I really hit a sweet spot in as a, you know, as a professional climber. Because a generation before, there were a handful of professional climbers in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, we had like Ben Moon and Jerry Moffat over here. You had Ron Kauk and John Backer in the States and then a few Euros. Um, but there was a handful of people and they were the best climbers in the world. You know, they were, <laughs> they were hands down the, the best. And there was maybe only a dozen people who were actually truly making a living out of going climbing to a high standard. And then my generation, which was from the, you know, late nineties, 
the industry boomed, right? The the whole, not just climbing, but the whole outdoor sector and the whole global economy picked up a lot. There was a lot more disposable income around. Loads of things changed, you know, TV changed. The the opportunity for all kinds of niche action, adventure, extreme outdoor sports, you became much easier to to do them professionally. You know, they're not, it's not that expensive to be a climbing bum. Um and then I kind of just caught the the you know right time, right place, right face. It, it all kind of happened, not not totally organically. It was it was by design. You know, it mm. was. I didn't stumble into this. It, it, I, I worked hard to 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 play the game. Um, but then it's changed again now. You know, and like I, I see, it's kind of I'm sort of getting used to it now. But definitely, there's a full generation now. You know, it's. I was kind of 20. The first time I climbed El Cap, I was 18. So that was 25 years ago. Mm. Um, so that's a complete generation. So I'm definitely no longer, not only are you not the young kid on the block, you're like entering the, the greybeard phase. As you can see, look at that bastard thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Makes you look cool. Bean stain. This is the this is the ice cream stain <laughs> on my beard. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and now to be a pro in, in a lot of fields, you've either got to be, ridiculously good and train extremely hard all the time you know like olympic style training full time um or you've got to be such like a a social media slut that you kind of don't get any time away from your screen to Mm. to to actually enjoy what it is you're doing you know you've you it's just so content creation focused that i i kind of feel sorry for people where you, you know like especially in the sect, you know, where people are doing all this stuff and they're out, oh, isn't it great to be outside? Yeah, outside, locked to your phone or locked mm. to your, you know, your camera creating content and then posting it and then replying and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, that that just didn't exist. I, like, um, you didn't used to get cell phone signal in Yosemite until, like, really late. It was, mm. like, surprisingly late. It was, like, in the ditch. AT&T were the only one that worked. It only worked when it was an analog phone. And it was like 2005, 2006, before you even got cell phone signal. Wow. Like, never yeah. mind, you know, 3G. And and then and then it changed really quick. And within, you know, a few years, it was constant feeds on LCAP. But to, just to, to have had that time where you could just, like, do your thing and, do something on El Cap, then maybe go back and get some photos that a photographer would take on slide film that he wouldn't get developed for a few weeks because he was in the valley with everyone. And then by the time that got submitted to a magazine, you might get a cover on Climbing Magazine four months after the event, you know, yeah. like a season. And uh, and there, it was kind of cash, you know, there was no massive pressure to to turn everything around straight away. And um, and it was, it was good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. I mean, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I can see the, um, it seems like you were born at the perfect time for you, for, for the style of climbing, for the experience that you love to have with your climbing, it yeah. seems like. Well, I think, you know, whatever. I think if you generations earlier, you would have had far more exploratory things to do. It would have been a lot more difficult to do it coming from a, you know, kind of an underprivileged background. Um, certainly in the UK, traditionally, it was very much people from the upper classes that were the archetypal explorers. Um, and then now, you know, there's still there's still a world to explore out there. There's still all kinds of super rad stuff 
new ways of enjoying things, new ways of monetizing it and paying for it. Um, but it's definitely, um, you know, I, I'm sure if you'd, I always remember hanging out in Yosemite and I always, I always found it weird how people would like do a time and then they would, they would disappear. And there was a generation that they were mostly aid climbers, the, the generation before us, and they did loads of stuff and they went season after season. And then apart from, from a few exceptions, they kind of stopped going or they'd only go rarely. And there's always been these, you know, each generation has its own golden age mm. and, uh, and then things change and like really the rocks don't change that much the valley doesn't change that much the rules will change a little bit the screws will get tightened a bit but it's you that changes it's your perception that changes your life that changes your seeing your friends and uh and i you know i spent more than 10 years um making that journey to yosemite every fall many springs as well it was in fact it was 12 years and then it ended quite abruptly unintentionally i didn't like say i'm, I'm never coming back um but since 2010, I've, I've been to Yosemite once. Um, and it's just not a part of my life anymore. It was like my 20s. And uh, and now I'm a bit reticent to go back. And there's still routes I'd like to do on El Cap. And I didn't intentionally not go. It just hasn't happened. Hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, you know, maybe it would be pretty weird because you know, for a time, you know, everybody, there was people hmm. you knew everywhere, yeah. kind of in good shape. And, um, and now I won't know anybody and it'll be... A completely different scene but if you just shown up for the first time you know as a teenager or in your 20s or whatever it, i'm sure it's just as mind-blowing and just as amazing and just as special for for the generation that are just arriving now as it was for for me and for all the generations before mm -hmm. yeah um i'm going to kind of frame some things i want to talk about with you because that's a great teaser i definitely want to ask about a handful of yosemite achievements and, and stories, you know, I want to, I have some questions about passage to freedom, the prophet, um, the Westy face on leaning tower, Southern bell with Dean Potter on half dome. Um, so I want to make our way to that stuff in a second. Uh, but first I, and I also want to talk to you about adventuring with your kids. I think that'll be a really, that's something I'm, I was fascinated to hear about when we talked before doing a pre-interview a couple months ago. And I think that'll be um, a really important thing to share just for inspiration and for information for people listening. Um, but first, just to frame this a little bit more, I wanna hear a little bit more about your relationship with adventure. I'm curious to hear what it means to you, why adventure is important, and maybe the best way to tackle that is thinking about how you approach it with your kids. Um, well, what do I, what, what's, what does it mean to me? I mean, I kind of, I've already touched it. I, I really like being out in wild places, doing wild stuff with wild people. I can't think of anything I'd rather do with my life. Um, when I look back now, the, th the events, you know, there's the big milestones, getting married, having children, stuff like that. And everything else, I kind of segment my life around the major expeditions. Basically, I can remember clearly when, each of them was and things that happened before or after there you know when when you lying on your deathbed you are gonna look back and you're gonna think well what were the most meaningful things that happened in my life um clearly like family is going to be a part of that relationships people uh, and other than that all you've got is experiences and memories and the adventures are the best ones for me they're the most vivid powerful formative um things that will happen in your life 
uh, you know, it's like Jack, Jack Kerouac said, right? You, you uh, at the end of the day, you, you won't remember all those days in the office or mowing the lawn, climb that goddamn mountain and it's bang <laughs> on, you know, it's, he meant it as a metaphor. I take it quite literally. Mm. And it's good. It's good to be outside. It's good to be in nature. It's good to, it's good to challenge yourself. It's good to push yourself. It's good to see what you're capable of. It's good to feel the wind in your face. It's good to get cold and tired and uncomfortable. And then it's good to come back and be warm and relaxed and enjoy all these luxuries that we so take for granted as, um, as normal, you know, just simple things like cold running water or hot running water, showers, um, shelter, all, all the things that you just absolutely take for granted in day-to-day life. When you remove yourself from those for a bit, um, you you value them a lot more. You know, mm. water, when you've got a, dealing with water on a on a big wall in the middle of nowhere, it's a nightmare because you, you have to bring it all up with you, you know, hundreds of liters of water has to be dragged up the cliff and all of a sudden when you don't have access to something in abundance you start to value it so much more um but it's not just about the deprivation you know when you you just really i enjoy being outside uh, but i do get bored really really quickly so i don't like i don't really enjoy hiking i don't really enjoy fishing very much it's not enough for me just to go and be somewhere beautiful and hang out. I really enjoy um, engaging with a with an intense activity, um, something that's physical, something that's exciting, um, and something that has an element of risk because you know danger is exciting, basically. Mm. Uh, and I've found that climbing big pointy mountains in the middle of nowhere um, and the whole like journey up to that kind of point and back again is is a really the perfect framing for adventure for me i quite like these days to have different elements in the journey but i've done a few trips where you don't climb anything um but they've still been big trips you know kite skiing or river trips or or crossings and and at the end of it i think well that was cool but you know it, it was kind of like all approach and no <laughs> yeah um, it was missing something so, so yeah and then same with the kids now so they uh you know, we've, we've, and for them, it's, um, you know, it's a big part of it's just about being out in, in wild, about camping, about being self-sufficient, um, and about being self-reliant and about taking responsibility for your own actions, about, um, facing fears, growing comfort zones, all that good stuff, you know, all those buzzwords, resilience and grit. Also about having fun and family time, but also about that kind of fairly clear challenge and, you know, it is it is a metaphor, but it's also a reality. Those when you set your sights on on a on a big pointy fang of granite in the middle of nowhere, it's it's a very simple challenge. Um, strategically, it's very simple. You're just like, right, can we do that or not uh, with an acceptable degree of safety? Tactically, it's really complicated. There's loads of like logistics and issues and obstacles to overcome. Um, but yeah, some of the trips we've done with the kids have been up there with as memorable and enjoyable and formative as, as any of the major expeditions I've done so far. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm curious, do you think it's learned, like observing your two kids, is it just exposure to these things that you think creates the love and the appreciation and the hunger for more adventures in life? Because thinking about you as an 11-year-old kid on Old Man of Hoy, I think it's a rare 11-year-old that gets vomited on by a fulmar 
and thinks like, that's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. I can't wait to do more of this kind of stuff, you know? So, so what have you observed in your kids? Are they, are they both taking to it equally? Or do you see that like, maybe there's just some, um, I don't know. It's the nature nurture question. Like, does one of them have more of an adventurous disposition than the other? Or do you think it's all just exposure and, and, growing the comfort zone the children are quite different they're they're definitely different characters um but also it's been interesting to see how it evolves and changes because right now freya my eldest is nine jackson's six and jackson's only just starting to figure out that it's kind of not normal to spend summer holidays our vacations doing the things that we do because kids it's anything normal is normal to a child it's especially when they're young, they're just so adaptive and um, and kind of resilient. And, you know, they're way more capable and competent than people give them credit for. And they just think it's perfectly normal to go, you know, tied to their mum's back up a 3,000 foot high alpine ridge somewhere. Um, you know, they still want to eat their Haribo's and they still like listening to their stories and they still like playing patty cake and eating biscuits on the ledges. They just really have no concept or comprehension that it's unusual in any way mm. to be doing this stuff. Freya is now nine and she's kind of figured out, ah, yeah, this isn't what other families do. Um, and we're, so we're trying to like make it not seem like it's a big deal um i've kind of been avoiding because some of the photos like kind of a couple of the photos of the kids doing stuff went viral and the media always pick up on like the youngest as if it's that's the point uh, and the last couple of things we've done i've intentionally like not put anything out because um i don't want freya to think that's why we do it because she'll be the youngest person to have done mm. this piece or because we're trying to get her picture in the newspaper that and she she gets a kick out of it right she goes and so it was her, her friends we this one thing we did a few years ago the northridge of the peace we did it was on the news and um and one of her friends from school was like mummy mummy freya's on the tv you know? <laughs> um, but that isn't the point at all it's a it's a nice little addition and it's kind of funny so but i don't want her to think that's why you know it's not about being the youngest it's not about the competition it's not about the publicity it's just about going out there and enjoying these experiences and, and actually a big part of the reason that um jessica and i started bringing the kids on adventures is because you know jessica in particular is a very hands-on mom we don't like ditching the kids with the grandparents or someone else and then going out and getting our fix but we used to do loads of adventurous stuff together before the kids came along all kinds of activities she's a good climber too but you know skiing snowboarding surfing um sea kayak and all these different things and then for a little while it gets put on hold when they're, they're really small um and then we were like well you know surely we can still go backpacking with like a baby and uh and then you know well we're so competent on steep terrain that well whatever a bit of third class bit of fourth class maybe a via ferrata it won't be too bad and then it went really well you know and the first thing we did is this it's the highest mountain in slovenia it's called triglaf and it's like semi-technical, you know, it's fifth class, there's a Via Ferrata at the top. Freya was five, Jackson was 18 months old. We developed a system where you could carry them in a harness, which works really well, helmeted up. And um, and it and it went really well. So we were like, well, that was cool. Let's <laughs> let's do something else, you know, and a bit more adventurous and a bit more remote without the Via Ferrata and actual climbing. And we did the North Ridge of the Pisa Deal, which is a fairly major 
thing you know it's easy it's like five six five seven but it's it's massive it's three thousand foot it's 23 pitches um <laughs> and it's an alpine summit you know, it's a proper yeah. ten thousand foot high pointy mountain in in the alps the long approach and the snow line and all that good stuff and and that went super smoothly and particularly the, the the big trick for the more serious climbing with the kids is is the fix and follow thing which um which is a total game changer you know which for those that don't know fix and follow is it's a technique developed in the states um on like more extreme ascents really on 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 free climbing large routes instead of belaying the second on a multi-pitch climb as you do normally you fix the rope and the second climbs on a pair of micro tractions um like when you practice in a route on abseil you know, I, I, we used to do it in Yosemite back in the day when you were rehearsing routes. Uh, and then people twigged that, well, hang on a minute, rather than belay in the second that we could just fix the rope and they can follow with micro tracks and then the belay can rest and you don't have to deal with the rope. Um, and now it's really catching on for um, for a lot of things in the States. It really only works with single rope climbing. So we don't do it that much in Europe. In Europe, particularly the UK, we often climb with two ropes. It mm. doesn't really work for two ropes. Um Anyway, I kind of twigged that that same technique, which has been developed, you know, very much at the kind of extreme end of the spectrum, could be repurposed to the exact opposite end, to the entry level, where anyone who's ever been multi-pitch climbing with little kids or a family will know that A, climbing in a group of more than three is a nightmare. It's really slow and inefficient and complex to manage. And B like climbing with little kids on a big cliff it, it, it usually doesn't go that well because the most experienced person usually leads so that'd be me so you're a full rope length ahead screaming down at the kids what to do and where to go and, and, and you know they're getting all stressed stop screaming at me mm. no i'm not angry <laughs> just you can't hear me you know, and, it, and it, it never goes very well. Yeah. Whereas with the fixing follow, you zip back down the rope. I go up first, fix the line, go back down. And then we all climb right next to each other on, <laughs> on a single rope that's fixed and redirected. And it's a total game changer because you're just right there next to them. If they start getting freaked out by the 6,000 foot drop below them, you can hold the hand, you can physically help them, you can tell them what to do, you can emotionally support them. And it's 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 really change things for us and it's been amazing i i love i love this i'm so psyched we're talking about this so <clears throat> the fix and follow thing for people that want to hear more about that i did an episode with josh wharton who i think developed that system i think he was at least one of the first people um Definitely, so go check yeah. that one out mikey schaefer i've done an episode with him as well and we talked about the fix and follow uh, in that episode so go check those out and then yes yeah, fascinating so you're your wife belays you up, you lead the pitch, you fix the line, you uh, lower back down, rappel back down, um, and then you all go on micro-tractions and just climb the route right next to each other. And you can yeah. lean down, grab your son's hand and help him through a hard move or whatever. It's And, and then your wife takes up the, the, the rear, I assume, and that's it's in the slack. It's yeah. incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really good. You do, there are a couple of things that's important to know. When you go back down, you have to be super, super conscious of sharp edges and loose rocks um, with fix and follow. It's mm. much more critical than normal climbing because obviously the rope's fixed. So a sharp edge is wearing the same point of the rope mm. rather than different points. 
Um, so I, I kind of like don't publicize too heavily the, what we do because I'm super paranoid that someone is going to go, oh, that's a great idea. And, you know, think what the worst case scenario is with if that goes mm. badly. Yeah. Um, the rope could get cut and the whole family could die. Um, so there's a few tricks. Basically, when you come back down, be really, really conscious of directing the rope and refixing it from time to time. Um, really, really conscious of sharp edges. If there is anything remotely sharp, refix the rope, not just a directional, you know, put a, a fresh beel in or a good piece and just refix it. Rope protectors. I always carry four rope protectors. Mm. Um, put those on. And then also using I use a special rope, those new Edelrid ropes, they um they're really good. The one that it's called they're called the ProTech ropes. They do two. And um they have an amrid fiber in the sheath. And uh, again, it's it's pretty special technology. They, their cut strength is like double any other rope on the market. They wow. really, really uh, are a lot better with sharp edges and, and um shear strength. So um so yeah, there's a few little tricks behind the scenes that make a big difference with that stuff. But I, you know, for experienced people, yeah, you know, our kids are kitted out with the this awesome ultra lightweight gear. So a lot of it's modified um, or some of it's custom built. So it's all because you don't tend to make like ultra light stuff for kids. Mm. Um, but we've got this amazing setup because the catch is I kind of have to carry everything. Um, and you know we've done a few the best one was a was a in the wind river range um two summers ago we went in for 14 nights into the back country in the winds um with two llamas carrying all our stuff <laughs> and uh, it, that's the thing you can rent llamas in in lander and you know the dead need to look after yeah it was because you, you kind of you know you can't really spend two weeks in the back country with you young kids without a bit of help um you just can't carry enough food to go out for that long and mm. i've already touched on I, I find it really changes when you start getting into multiple weeks it's not the same as a weekend there's nothing wrong with the weekend in the backcountry. that's an awesome thing to do but when you start actually living in the wild it, it, you connect with it all on a much deeper level it really starts to become a part of your life rather than just a weekend um and I was really keen to, to introduce the children to that. And anyway, llamas, what, what's not to like? You know, they, can, <laughs> they can carry about, you know, uh, they carry about 30 kilos each and they're they're super cute. They're they're in the camel family, they're cameloids, so they they can just eat anything, you know, they'd look after themselves, they can go for days without food or water. And uh, and yeah, and it and it went super smoothly. We went out there, um, just the four of us, and and they the, the llamas Tiberius and Titan uh, and we had about you know, 100 kilos of food and equipment everything that we needed to camp the fishing's incredible my little boy Jackson caught a fish um on his first ever cast <laughs> that's amazing he couldn't wow. make it up you know yeah and it was like edible it wasn't big but it was like an edible little I think it was a rainbow trout that came out of you know, the fishing's really good in, in the winds and the deeper you go the better it is um uh, and you know we got stormed on we got bombarded by gnarly uh hailstorms and just all those things that happen in the wilderness and it was the most amazing uh two weeks spotting and then we went climbing in the middle of it you know we we did a few days climbing in the in the circle of the towers we did the east ridge of pingora um and jackson's only four you know wow. he's fully 
busting out on this with this fix and follow technique. And that route's awesome because it kind of wraps around. It's very easy, five, six. But it's at one point, you kind of diagonal around and you're 2,000 foot up a vertical granite wall um, on, a, on a pretty easy system. And he climbed the whole thing uh, by himself without getting carried. The next day, my Freya and I did the East Ridge of the Wolf's Head, which is one of the 50 classic climbs in North America. It's absolutely epic, you know, with that knife edge ridge, the, the sidewalk thing. It's a big day out. Um, she was seven. Wilson actually joined us for that one, which really helped. And then we kept going and we went right much deeper into the winds, into, into Mount Hooker. Um, and, you know, Jackson did 14 miles from near the Cirque of the Towers all the way into Mount Hooker and over the pass into Mount Hooker, which is a bitch. You know, it's like it's a big, <laughs> steep hill. Yeah. And that was right at the end of the day. That was like the 14th mile of the day. It's like a, it's like a two and a half thousand foot ascent. You know, it, it's, it's an, all the climbers hate it. It's like, it's a bitch getting over that thing. Yeah. It was four. <laughs> Wilson couldn't believe it. You know, this tiny little four-year-old kid. That's incredible. Just like along through the back country, telling stories, playing games, uh, <laughs> laughing at the llamas. And then Wilson and I did a big route on uh, on Hooker, um, gambling in the winds. Whilst uh, you know we left the family down there, no one else there, and we we didn't quite free it. We had these a couple of points of aid, but it's a big thing. You know, it's like a major like whatever it is, like a 15, 16 pitch, five twelve um backcountry wall which we did in a push uh whilst the kids wow. were getting rustled by bears down in the uh <laughs> in the valley it was it was the most amazing fortnight that's incredible incredible do you um do you have any tips or tricks for keeping the morale high for the kids or keeping them motivated or is that even necessary like are like yes it, yeah definitely they're yeah kids. okay they're in the ass right they're not like <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm just you're painting this picture of like them kind of you know frolicking through the the mountains and having a great time but kids are kids so yeah 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 there's that my, and, and freya my eldest is autistic um so she's you know neurodiverse so she has other challenges too um but the the main tricks that we use are number one is um hold her hand when you walk in with kids and you're trying to cover some distance it makes a big difference if you hold the hand because you can set the pace a bit more they don't wander off and then keep them entertained so uh, as particularly with freya but also with jackson we play games constantly the, the the like word games you know like i spy or the main one is is 20 questions we used to call it the animal game where you you know it's 20 questions you just you're only allowed to say yes and no and you have to guess it or that now sometimes that'll be the Harry Potter game where it's a character from Harry Potter and you kind of keep stimulation going the whole time. Um, we tend to start as try and start reasonably early and finish early. If you're camping and you're backcountry missioning, you know, stop hiking at like three, four o'clock at the latest because that, that's the nice part is the hanging out. It's like mm. the whole through trip thing with kids is, is a you know, you know it's fun being on the trail, but it's fun hanging out by the lake and it's fun having a campfire and it's fun just playing cards and being out there. So we tend not to do massive days or sometimes you do, but largely, you know, start early, finish early. And then our secret weapon when they start whining and, uh, and having a hard time is, um, is audio books. Mm. And, uh, and that, that's really helped actually. And, you know, we had, we've had the whole Harry Potter series. We've done like, some serious ascents 
powered by uh, by Harry Potter, <laughs> and I play it, and I play it off my phone, um, and I and I have it on the speaker. We never use headphones because you want to be part of it together, and I have it in my pocket, so mm, they, they have to keep up. They've got to keep you know? up <laughs> if they want to listen to it. Uh, and we we try not to bring that out until later in the day, but. That's definitely that. That's definitely helped, uh, and, and there's quite a few like practical tricks that have that have helped a lot. The fix and follow is the big one. Um, this carry system, when Jackson was little, it's called an Ergo Baby, and that's a winner. It's like a sling type carrier. We tried loads of things, and that was by far the best one. The big frame children's backpacks are useless, in my opinion. Too um, heavy. Too heavy and too unwieldy. They, mm. they the child sits really far away from your back. And I mean, they're not designed for alpine climbing, obviously. Mm. But the little carriers, we can still use them now. You know, even with a kid up to like twenty kilos, you can still, as an emergency, we still bring it just in case. Um, and obviously, with a harness inside that, and then a couple of slings from the child's belay loop over your shoulders to your belay loop, tension just right. So, you know, there's. There's no slack in the system, but it's not too tight. Helmets, um, really lightweight helmets, that's important. And then just you need like pretty sort of uh, refined system because you need lightweight kit, you need you need good gear because trying to deal with all the stuff, if it's not like all Gucci, ultralight, minimalist setup, you kind of can't do it because, you know, everything that you need for a family of four to survive for two weeks in the backcountry, completely self-sufficient, and climb like pretty major objectives, and climb Mount Hooker, by the way, as well. I had most of the rack for that, so like a full setup. Mm. Um, and we did all oh, we we had 110 kilos was our start weight, which is that's not much to bring all the food and all everything, you know, water purifiers, tents, mosquito mm. nets, bug spray, um three sets of cams, like two ropes, all the micro track, all of it. Um, you kind of need, uh, you need some decent kit to, to make it all work. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rocky Talkie. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers from Denver, Colorado. I love these things. I never thought I'd be going back to using radios in the year 2023, but these things are awesome. Here's the deal. We all have phones, but sometimes phones aren't very helpful. Let's say you're climbing a multi-pitch or you're backcountry skiing and don't want to drop your phone in the snow or you're mountain biking and it's a pain to stop and get your phone out or you don't have service. Phones are not always the best option. The best way to communicate in the backcountry is with Rocky Talkies. These things are made by climbers for climbers. They're super compact. They weigh less than half a pound. They come with a built-in carabiner so you can easily clip them to your pack or harness. And the battery lasts over three days, even in winter conditions. So cool. I actually used these bouldering in Waco tanks this winter. There were a few times when I made plans to meet up with friends at the boulders. I knew I wouldn't have cell reception and the Rocky Talkies worked perfectly. And they're so much fun. I'm a huge fan. Get 10% off your first pair of Rocky Talkies by going to rockytalkie.com nugget. That's rockytalkie.com nugget for 10% off your first order of backcountry radios. 
This episode is brought to you by Rumple. Rumple is on a mission to introduce the world to better blankets. And I think they've done that. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish. So it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. This thing's amazing. It'll be your new favorite blanket, whatever the circumstances, even if you just use it at the house. It's the best. Also, Rumpel has branched out and makes a ton of other amazing products. The Nanoloft travel blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you literally anywhere. And the Nanoloft flame blanket, that's the one I have, has a fire-resistant top layer so you can sit next to a campfire with your puffy blanket and not have to worry about burn holes. Amazing. I also have the Everywhere Mat. This thing is a perfect little porch for my van. It's also perfect for a picnic or for hanging out at the crag. And the Everywhere Towel is super handy as well. This thing takes up no room at all. It's a full-size towel. It's so convenient for travel. It dries super quickly. And if you're like me and live in a van, it's a total must-have. I actually got rid of my regular towel because this thing was better. I just love Rumple. Everything they make is amazing. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. And now back to the show. Oh my gosh, incredible. You're a wealth of knowledge. This is amazing. I love this because, you know, people often, I've been told this so many times, people often hear about my lifestyle. I'm 33 years old. Um, You know, whether it's friends, family, um, family friends, people that have kids, they often say things like, just you wait, you know, just you wait. When you have kids, this is all going to end. Enjoy it while you can. That's always the sentiment, right? Like this there's this kind of sentiment or implication that when you have kids, if you do, um, your your adventure life comes to an end or drastically changes. And I know that kids is hard and um, I don't have kids myself, but I know it's hard. I'm not trying to diminish it. But the thing I've noticed just observing all of the people that in my life that I know is that the people, like almost no one drastically changes when they have kids. So the people who end up sitting on the couch a lot and entertaining their kids were more or less doing that before. They weren't getting out having tons of adventures all the time. And then the people that are climbing all the time and passionate about it have kids. They find a way to continue doing that. And they bring the kids along on their adventurous or climbing lifestyle. And it's just so cool to to hear you. I mean, you're just like the far end extreme example of that. You have this incredibly adventurous lifestyle and you're still doing the same things with a five-year-old and a nine-year-old daughter. It's, in, it's incredible. So it's so fun to hear about. It's really inspiring. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, there is definitely a lot of compromise when they start school. That's, that's the real bind is, um, is you really get kind of, un- you get locked into that schedule of, um you know you can only do stuff in or bigger stuff in the school holidays or you have to tap out completely at least in the uk system you kind of in or out you can homeschool you can uh commit to you know fully an alternative way of life but i don't really want to do that i like having a foot in the you know the normal world as well i want the kids to be able to 
have friends at high school and do the whole thing. Um, so yeah, you know, there is a lot of compromise with kids. It's not easy, but you're right. You can still carry on doing stuff and, um, and, and you can do a lot more than, than you might imagine. We're actually going to take the kids out of school for a year next year. Um, and, uh, and do a big, you know, round the world mission with a bunch of adventures. Cause they're only young once and it's mm. you really start to see it fast for me it was a bit overwhelming to start with when they were babies because i kind of didn't want kids i was perfectly happy with my extreme life of adventure the way it was it's quite a high risk life um and i didn't want to have to compromise that but i kind of came around to it and then you realize oh my god they're only they're only babies for like a year you know mm. one year and then that's it they're not a baby anymore you might have another child, you might have one more year, but then you'll never have a baby again. You know, mm. it's really finite. And then they're toddlers and they're super cute and they're learning to walk and they're learning to talk. And then that's two years. They're like that, you know, really finite amount of time. And and every stage is super finite and super fast. And uh, and I want to be able to experience more of these awesome things. These days, it's, I mean, we do loads of stuff all the time, but the big, really memorable ones are summer vacation. Um, and I and I don't want to be tied to that single kind of, you know, six weeks in the summer when you can do something. I what we want to, so we're going to do a big mission with them. But someone told me this is the, I think the best. It's not really advice, but it it just sums up the the parenthood experience. Um, the days are long, but the years are short. Mm. <laughs> so true. Like you know, you do your head in, especially when they're little and they're screaming or <laughs> and they're being a pain in the ass and. It feels like the day drags on forever. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, they're they're already like, you know, Freya's nearly 10 and like so much time has passed. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I don't know if I've talked about this much on the podcast, but when I was five, um, my dad was a lawyer and he had a sabbatical program. And when I was five, my whole family went on our first sabbatical together to South America. And, you know, at the time, like we didn't have much disposable income. So we did it on the cheap, just back, you know, backpacking, staying in really cheap places and, you know, no climbing or anything like that. My parents aren't climbers, but it was a proper adventure. And we just got to, we, we really immersed in like the cultural experience. And I was only five years old, so I don't remember it distinctly. Like I don't have a lot of clear memories, just kind of these snapshots, but I really, really value that experience at that age. I think it did so much to kind of color my worldview and to just appreciate that there's a lot of other ways to grow up as a kid. You know, it's it's not just this little suburban existence for everybody. Definitely. And I'm just traveling in the developing world. Good on your yeah. parents, you know, uh, just showing you that this kind of privileged normality that we think is the world isn't. It's actually a very, very small percentage of the world that live this privileged life of abundance. Um, and I have no doubt that, you know, that experience is is part of the reason you live in a van right now and, <laughs> you know, are, are the person that you are. It's, yeah. You can't pinpoint one specific thing, but that kind of value system that, that you grew up with will have no doubt affected the decisions and choices that you've made that have led you to where you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. As far as that year-long trip goes, do you have it planned out? Do you have specific places you're most excited to visit or... Is that not yet? Not no, yet. Okay. The, um, uh, we've got. I've got ideas. We'll spend some time in the states. My wife's half American, so she's got an American passport. I mean, the, the Western states is just the easiest place in the world to go on epic adventures. Right? It's so well set up, and um, the weather's so good, and there's so much amazing landscape and backcountry and um, and rock climbing. 
So we'll definitely spend a chunk of time in the States. But I also want to go to the developing world. We'll probably spend some time in Nepal. Um, mm. And I'd like the kids to see how most of the kids in the world live and you mm. know how lucky they are to live in a safe place with abundance and like um all the all the benefits of being a, a western child and then a few like major missions as well i've got a few ideas for some bigger um sort of adventures to do with them and jess and i are quite a good team because i actually do like to have a bit of plan and structure you you kind of can't do really epic stuff just by winging it you, you do need to plan it you need to know what you're going to do and where and what you're going to need and how much stuff Whereas Jess is much more like kind of roll with it, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll see what, you know, we'll go out, we'll go somewhere and then we'll figure out what we do when we get there. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's not, you know, <laughs> I just want to sit around by the lake, you know, what are we going to do? And anyway, it works quite well to have, uh, nice. you know, the, the yin and yang kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so that's next summer. So I'm trying to cram in some daddy trips uh, <laughs> next like year, basically. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all that, man. Very inspiring, like I said. Um, and, and lots of very good, like actionable information for, for parents out there too who want to keep climbing and adventuring. So thank you for that. Is there anything else as far as that goes? Yeah, just, you know, the, the thing that we always find and we're talking about the big missions now, which is, you know, one or two a year, but pretty much every weekend we're out doing something. And where we live in the Lake District, the weather's often super shitty and it's so hard getting motivated to get out. And then when you do get out, it's always a pain in the ass and the kids are always complaining and it's hard work. Um, but it's just that first hour. Like if you can push on through the first hour, um, once you get them going and once, you know, you keep them warm and you keep them fed, you can really keep going and keep going and keep going. And you almost never regret it, you know, mm. even on a, a just a tiny adventure, just to do anything, the really low scale stuff that's really um, just a little bit beyond reach. It doesn't have to be these big epic things. Uh, just taking your family into the wild for a little bit of time, even if it's just a few hours and going a little bit off the beaten track, pushing yourself a little bit, leaving those home comforts and comfort zones behind is so worthwhile. Kids get a lot out of it. Parents get a lot out of it. And then the other thing, clearly this is a climbing podcast. Kids dig climbing, man. Like the, the hardest part of the, the missions is the approaches. It's the walk-ins. Walking uphill, kids don't like walking uphill. It's, you know, it's hard work, it's tiring, and it's boring. As soon as you get to terrain where you have to start using your hands, it changes. It's so mm. much more fun. You know, kids like climbing. That's why playgrounds always have climbing frames in them. And when you start getting on to, you know, third, fourth, fifth class, um, it's way more fun. And so actually dialing up the technicality of the adventure can can make it a lot more fun as a family. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a that's great advice. Can we do some uh can we do some stories from Yosemite? Yeah. I have a... Yeah, Amon died last week. That's a sad. Um, you know, Amon McNeely two weeks ago. That was uh, that took me back to Yosemite times. We hung mm. out a lot. Amon was one of the very first people I met uh, when I first arrived in Yosemite. So... Um, oh, man. A little bit of heartache seeing that, you know, the uh, the El Cap pirate 
um, moved on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, R.I.P. Um, to him for sure. No peace for that man. He'll be tearing it up. He'll, <laughs> That's be ready true. To peace. He'll have a 12 pack of King Cobras <laughs> wherever he is right now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. That's great. Um, let's see. What do I want to ask you about? So first, first things first, I want to ask you about a story. This is just kind of like a fun fact check. And I want to hear the story from you. I interviewed Tommy Caldwell last summer. And he was telling me about Passage to Freedom, which he freed with Alex Honnold, which, and, and you should actually help me understand exactly how the route works and what happens. But my understanding is that you put up this, this like 11 pitch, 13 plus route that ends at El Cap Tower. And then Tommy and Alex figured out a way to take it the rest of the way up the wall. Is that right? Basically, yes. Okay. So... Tommy told me this story about the Alpha Romeo badge and I had never heard it before. I thought that was just, that's just like the thing of lore, you know, like what, what a, what an interesting story, well, but kind of a long story, but yeah. <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell me about that? I mean, first off, people might not know what an Alpha Romeo is. It's a type of car, but um, where did you find this thing? How did this come about? So I'll try to be succinct. The uh, It was 1999. Um, so I first arrived in Yosemite in 1998. Uh, found it overwhelming. No walling experience. Uh, hung out in the valley for a few weeks. And then having met people like Dean Potter and Alex and Thomas Huber and Jose Pereira, they kind of convinced us that we should have a go at El Cap. And Patch Hammond and I did the second ascent of El Nino Um right after the Hoobers had free climbed it. And that was my first wall. And I don't, and I nearly did it on site. And um and it blew my mind. It was like all of a sudden my life goals had changed. And I've never been able to look at a cliff back in England in the same way ever since. Because mm. the scale and perfection of El Cap. And then the next year I went back, 99, and I remember my life, my vision, my perspective had just changed so much in that one year from looking at El Cap and just thinking that looks impossible to being like, well, actually, potentially you can, you don't need much to free climb an El Cap. You just need something, you know, you just need a few matchsticks in the right places. And the scale's so massive that there's entire ledge systems that you can, you know, there's pitches of fifth class that you can't even see um, mm. from the meadow. And so I thought, right, let's see if we can free climb the biggest, steepest, cleanest part of the wall, the Dawn wall from the ground up. And um, and so long before anyone knew what the Dawn Wall was, um, I tried to free climb it, and uh, and I spent the autumn season of two nineteen ninety nine, and we set off up Mescalito exactly where Tommy ended up going, um, but about three pitches up, there's a really hard bit, and uh, and I couldn't figure out a way of doing that, so came back down, and the first half, first half of the first pitch is in the same place as where the Dawn Wall goes, and then. It goes left. Now, the Dawn Wall is now their route, but really that refers to the whole feature of mm -hmm. El Cap. There's about six routes that climb the Dawn Wall, um, it, the biggest, steepest, cleanest, most impressive part of the captain. Uh, and my idea wasn't to like single out a specific route. It was just to find a way up to free climb it. Uh, anyway, so we ended up, um, I ended up a bit further left and then found a way aid climbing 
up and then spending ages swinging around trying to figure it out. And we found a way that went all the way up to El Cap Spire via Lady Ledge over the course of a season, you know, so like six weeks um, hanging around up there. We had some really good parties on Lay Lady Ledge, like full techno parties with this massive <laughs> speaker system back in the days of mini disc players. Um, and, uh, and then I managed to red point every pitch <clears throat> except one little bit. And there was about 10 feet of, of blank granite between two systems and uh and i was like shit i can't do that and at the time i was i thought well you know free as can be you know what's if you just have a few points of aid it's still awesome to be able to link all these free pitches um so this one blank spot i was gonna drill a rivet ladder through it like a climbers do you know and have like three or four rivets to link these two ledges Uh, and then as i was about to drill the first rivet i was like hang on a minute if I just put the alpha badge here, I'll only have to drill one hole and it'll be way more fun than than cracking your aiders out. Now, the alpha badge the story there was that um, my friend Tim Emmett was a, a, a sales rep for DMM um, for years. And he had this car, which was an Alfa Romeo 955, which is a classic red Italian semi-sports car. And uh, and we did loads and loads of trips in it, and it was a fast vehicle. Tim lost his driving license in it more than once. Um, and he's been it, on the podcast. Really that's fun. that's great. Yeah, and that was back when we were all bums, you know. And like, I didn't even have a driving license. No one had any money. No one had a car. Tim's car before that was this total piece of shit, old beaten up um, Volkswagen Polo. And then he got this job and he got this shiny red sports car and we did loads of trips in it. And then finally, I think basically Tim had got so many speeding tickets that DMM took it off him um, and, he, and he got a downgrade. And right when the car was leaving and we'd done loads of trips in it, you know, all over the place as you do. And just as the car was leaving and I said goodbye to to Tim and to the car for the last time, um, I pulled the badge, the hood ornament off the front <laughs> and uh, and and disappeared off. So they returned the car back to the leasing company without the badge. And then I stuck it to my helmet <laughs> and went on like a bunch of trips with this badge on the front of my helmet and got photos of it in all kinds of crazy places doing cool stuff. It's uh, and I and I scratched into it music, friendship, good times and hard climbs. That was the uh, that was the motto. Um, and then I had it on my helmet when I was there and you sent me and I was like, you know what, if I just put that there, I bet we could, uh, we could free climb this or, you know, I called it a zero, um, like the hardest aid move in the world. And it was hard. It was like a <laughs> kind of a dyno to get this thing and then a dyno off it. Um, and then we got shut down that season at El Cap Spine. And then the next season went back again with Amon McNeely and Jose and Jason Pickles. And we went back up to the high point and then spent almost a week trying to find a way through the next section, which is super duper blank. You can see above that big systems, you could get across into the upper part of the Dawn wall, which is actually mostly 512. There's a couple of 513 pitches or the upper part of New Dawn, which is incredible steep systems, but I couldn't find a way through this blank section. Um, and in the end, where Tommy and Alex went, they went down and they went across the chipped Jardine Traverse th- on the nose and then up 
and then way back across, which we did talk about and think about. Mm. But logistically, that is a complex thing to do. You're talking about like, I think they did like 80 meters of straight horizontal traversing above that section. And deal, it's the hard thing to do. Tommy's the master, right? And he'd spent years coming top down with miles of rope up there, becoming more intimate than anyone ever with all that area. And particularly the top down thing, it does help a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh time wise and uh, and they found and they, they found the passage you know i knew it was there and they found it but then lower down they found a way around the uh the alpha slab but i'm pretty sure that that's been nailed out because it was not free climbable and i'm pretty sure they mm. followed new dawn aid route and um you couldn't it what you couldn't fit your fingers in it it didn't it didn't go um it might have just been i mean there's no question that tommy's a better climber uh, and Alex are stronger climbers, but it it wasn't like I couldn't do it. It was like there's no way. Mm. Um, but it's surprising how quickly granite cracks go from being seams, you know, like beak seams to blades to angles. And once you get to like fat angles or onto onto um, sorry, once you go from fat lost hours onto angles, you can get your fingers in it. Mm. And it's quite surprising how fast that happens. I've been amazed to see features change which is why clean aiding is so important um it doesn't take long for something it, it, it doesn't take like decades it, it can take like you know weeks if mm. if it's heavily nailed it can change and people still nail on uh on on especially the hard clean routes people still nail them so i'm pretty sure that what used to be a beak seam is probably now you know you can probably get your tips in it um, so they found a variation which removes that point of aid and then this massive variation higher up. I'd actually that's one of the routes that would that's why one of the main reasons I want to go back to Yosemite. Oh really? Because, yeah, is that's to awesome. uh, see um where they went and have a pop at that. Because obviously those two have done more in Yosemite than anybody, and particularly Tommy. Um, you know, he has spent so much time searching El Cap and free climbing and doing it. And he said that it's one of his favorite routes. You know, mm. I think the upper part, I don't know what he said to you, but I've read a few things that I think the upper part is really pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Where, where it goes. And it's not that hard. You know, I mean, it's it's 13 plus, it's not 14 plus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like 35 pitches or something. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm thinking uh, one of these years before I get too old, I'd quite like to come back and go. And spend like a couple of weeks up there, uh, and and maybe free as can be. You know, maybe I think there's a few real cruxes, but even if you only manage to free a lot of it, you know, just to be up on El Capitan, free climbing is, uh, and and particularly on site when it's when it's a bit easier is, uh, it's so much fun. I just love it. Amazing, man. Thank you for sharing that story. That was incredible. <clears throat> um, Every, yeah, as soon as I heard that from Tommy, I was like, I really hope I get to ask Leo about that story because I just want to hear, like, I just want to hear what happened. Like, wh- how did that thing yeah, end up no, on the side of El Cap? We put both on hold on El Cap, but somehow got away with it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was a good enough story around it. And, yeah. You know, we say we called it aid. Um, and we only had to drill one hole. We would have had to have drilled four holes otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so cool that they finished that saga and managed to find a way. And 
and it was really nice of them to to keep the name um you know mm. we only did half the route they did the other more impressive half and um they did add a couple of bolts to the first pitch as well but to be fair to them they um they asked me they mm. uh tommy called me up out of the bloom was like hey dude we we found a way to do it would you mind if we added a few retro bolts because there was some really spicy run out climbing lower down and jace was like no tell them no <laughs> tell them <laughs> tell them they've got to run it out and I was like, well, I might want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to run it out like I did when I was 21, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> I'd be pretty stoked if they put a couple of bolts in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay, I have some questions about The Prophet, your first ascent of The Prophet too. which now this is quite a bit later. This is 2012. Um, and this was like a 10-year project for you. 2010? Yeah. Okay, 2010. I think at the time it was, I think you called it like the hardest route you'd ever tried, you know, considering the whole, the whole package of the thing, the wildest route of your life, at least up to that point. Um, let's see here. I have a question from Sam Stroh, who is, uh, who's becoming quite a strong Yosemite climber himself and has spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, I just interviewed him recently. Sam writes, Leo's ground up attempts on the profit are some of the boldest and most impressive feats of ground up big wall free climbing. Would Leo recommend future climbers try to repeat routes like the profit in a similar way, even though Leo and Jason Pickles uh, took some injury causing whippers on some of the 513R pitches lower on the climb? Climbers have repeated the profit going ground up on the pitches that Leo went ground up on, but they repelled in on the pitches that Leo repelled into while other climbers have, have rehearsed every pitch from above. Does Leo have any thoughts on these ascents? Uh, well, thank you, Sam. Um, the uh, So the only sort of injury that happened was was on the first pitch when Jace fell off on an easy bit. Um, so, but there is definitely potential for injury if you fell off in the wrong place on some of the harder stuff. I, I always think that going ground up is the way to go, you know, especially on an established route because you've got a good idea of what you're getting into. It's very different when you're going into new terrain and uh, and and it, and it was a um, those first attempts at the profit going ground up on site with no you know no aiders intentionally not doing any aid climbing no fixed rope no portal edge no bolt um, was mind blowing and we kept reclimbing it again and again more efficiently and quicker each time to get higher and the, the, the last pitch that we did the last full pitch the screamer pitch was pretty mind blowing it's. You know, when I went back and did it, and then when Sonny Trotter did it, who is uh, who Sam's referring to there, they very respectfully, Sonny and Will Stanhope, went ground up on those first pitches. And uh, and it, it's hard, you know. It's kind of like run out 13BR um, mm. when you know what you're getting into. And not knowing, I, it was really hard, you know, because you're climbing into the unknown. You don't even know if it's going to be possible. You're getting more and more run out. It's... It was super intense and that was my trip at the time. Um, that was before I had a like life-changing accident on Serratori right before, um, partly thanks to that same attitude, um, which was you know pretty reckless basically. Uh, however, now that a topo exists and you know what's coming up, I would definitely recommend people try it ground up. And then we sort of, we did rig it so that it's not total chop brute. None of the X climbing is that hard. There's a lot of R, there's a lot of, like 13 R, but none of the 513 climbing is X. Um, 
the only really gnarly stuff is much easier. And then, you know, we ended it and we debated long and hard how many bolts to put in on a cup one pitch in particular. It's called the guillotine pitch where you go through this quite tossy rock for, for quite a long way. Well, like half a pitch. Um, and because I'd been practicing it top down, I could have done it. I mean, I could have soloed it, right? I could have definitely done it with hardly any bolts or even none. In like the way we do in Britain, you know, like we call it head point in, it would have definitely been E9, maybe E10. But I would have like top roped it to death, ticked the hell out of it, and then done it and almost certainly not fallen off because I wouldn't have even tried it. But I was like, well, if we do that, no one's ever going to try this route mm. ground up. There, everyone's always going to have to, you know, use top-down tactics of one way or another. Whereas if we put like, you know, a few more bolts in it, then it would be doable ground up. It's still super run out. I think there's maybe seven bolts in the pitch, but it's feasible. It's not, you know, you, you could fall off it. It's like, it's doable. So I intentionally ended up adding more bolts than I kind of needed because I wanted it to be doable for other people to go ground up so you don't have to head point, so you don't have to top rope. Mm. But then as it transpires, right at the top, like the second to last pitch, is the crux by miles. Um, and it changes, the rock really changes, and it's absolutely beautiful, perfect L-cap. Granted, the A1 Beauty, this beautiful splitter right near the top, um, which, you know, would... It, I'd love to. I'd love for someone to flash that. If if you, mm. that would be a hard pitch to to flash. Um, and you know, it's it's we gave it thirteen D, but I think it's probably fourteen A. Mm. Um, and it's a crack, so it's protectable, but it's kind of it kind of earns an R at the at the end. And uh, but it's just such a perfect pitch. I mean, it's in my opinion, it's up there with any pitch on El Cap, you know, the Salathe wow. head well, it's just absolutely immaculate and beautiful and really hard, you know, like only just possible. There's a few, it's the classic thing where if you, there's like a couple of holes that if you remove them, I don't think it would go. It would be 14 plus 15 minus just, you know, one good hold mm. right where you need it. If that wasn't there, it'd be a lot harder. I'm kind of surprised it hasn't caught on more of as a, as a pitch in its own right. Mm. Cause it's not that hard get to because it's way over on the right side so you can go up these ledges it's it's half the distance of the nose and uh and then it's only with a 100 meter rope you could get to the bottom of it it's the second to last pitch um it's not that hard to get to and there's a good ledge at the bottom uh so i kind of thought it might catch on as like a you know a kind of not separate reality because separate realities but you know what i mean you have to wrap into kind of a little bit of a mission but it, it hasn't done because <laughs> it is it is a mission to get to and it's hard as fuck. You know? it's, it's <laughs> yeah. really hard, but just as a single pitch, it, it's worthy. And then when you put that on top of all the other adventurous stuff, but in answer to Sam, you know, go for it, ground up. If not, have a look at it top down. There, it's uh, it's a personal challenge, isn't it? Do whatever you want, but um, I've always found that climbing ground up and and particularly climbing on site is the most rewarding thing when you really there's something magical about on site climbing it's that finiteness it's the fact that you only ever get one go you know that's it you'll never get another chance for a first attempt and there's something special about that mm, yeah 
Early in the conversation, you talked about these adventures as these kind of like life reference points, you know? When, when you think back, when you're on your deathbed, you'll think back and have these very distinct references with these adventures. Does the prophet stand out? Is that one of the most memorable ones? In terms of pure rock climbing, definitely, yes. What actually happened with the prophet was we started off on that journey in 2001, trying to climb a new route on El Cap from the ground up with you know no fixed rope, no bolts, no aid climbing. Um, had a good go, then Jason got hurt, and then... Right after that, I got hurt badly on Saratori, uh, largely because of that attitude that I was taking. 21 years old, I'm indestructible, anything's possible, you know, and, and, it, and it went awry big time. And then I went back a few years later uh, with Evo and Jason. We aid climbed. Uh, we, we had another go from the ground up, but with aid. And we got stormed off horribly by an unexpected storm that two people died in, two Japanese mm. people died on the nose. And then I didn't want to go top down because, you know, it'd been this dream. And then eventually, 10 years later, I thought, God, I'm never going to have balls that big again or be that stupid again. So we came top down, had a look, realized that the by far the hardest climber is right at the top anyway. So then we fully projected it. Um, and then finally, didn't quite send in the spring 2010. So came back in the autumn, got ready for the send, and then another massive storm was coming and and I, and it was like i couldn't stay any longer so we had this ridiculously epic experience where whilst everybody else was bailing from el cap because there's a major like winter storm coming jason and i set off um and we climbed right up to like the first 10 pitches all that hard run out climbing and one day we had a cache on the wall so we just went light up to a, a portal edge with us you know just below the devil's brow and then we got hammered by the gnarliest storm I've ever experienced in Yosemite. It was so bad. Um, <laughs> it was full on, you know. I think it was one of the worst storms in Yosemite history, period, from what I read. I think that's what Climbing so Magazine gnarly, said. Man. It was like a joke how gnarly it was. The, you know, the whole wall just turns into a waterfall. And we had this shitty old portal ledge that had borrowed off Stanley that was knackered. And the fly <laughs> sheet was knackered. So the fucking thing flooded the whole thing. Oh. The next week, high but it leaked so it flooded the whole we were in like you know five inches of water oh inside the portal shaking around like inside this waterfall um for three days like three whole days it Jesus. didn't stop and uh we had down sleeping bags which is like the big no-no and and for the first like sort of 48 50 hours we were kind of, it was funny, you know, and uh, and we were like, oh, is that all you've got? And then, then when the whiskey <laughs> ran out and then it got worse, like the last night, the last eight hours was so gnarly. The ledge was just getting, you know, hammered up and it gets lifted and thrown. We were holding the fly sheet off, just like, oh my God, if the fly sheet blows out, if, if I could have got rescued, if I could have pressed the button and been rescued, I would definitely have done it. No mm. question. <laughs> wow. There's no way you can get rescued in that situation. Yeah. And then finally the storm stopped. And like it does in Yosemite, it's like a switch, right? It just passes and blue sky returns. And we were like semi-hypothermic, <laughs> um, pretty much ready to ask for a rescue. I, I called Stanley and I was like, dude, come and get us. You know, we don't... We, come and drop a rope in because we didn't have ropes fixed. Uh, thank God, because if we had had ropes fixed, we would have definitely bailed. Um, and anyway, and then he was like, all right, I'll come and get you this afternoon. And then 
we're like, actually, you know, we're not dead and like <laughs> it's a really nice day again now. Um so we're like, well, maybe maybe we should hang fire. And I called him back, he's like, okay, no, we're not, we're all right, we're gonna see if we can ride this out. And then we managed to dry out all our shit and uh it over the next like day. And then you had, we had to do the A1 Butte, which is like a 514 trad pit <laughs> after having just spent 90 hours like in a fight for survival it, we were like ready for getting rescued and then as a single pitch it's up there with the hardest things i've ever climbed and then i tried it and i and all the chalk had washed off obviously and i did well and then finally i did it on like the very last go the next day i had to go in the morning and i got right to the very top i did the crux and i was literally like two moves from the end easy terrain but I pumped out and I, and I dropped it. Like I've done it <laughs> and, and I fell off like right there. You know, when that uh, happened, yeah. it, it was just like, I nearly cried. It was like the, one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. And, uh, and came back down and like I nearly cried and then fell asleep on the portal ledge and then woke up and it was in the midday sun and, you know, like climbing our cap, it's at least, at least a full grade harder possibly two the difference between good conditions in the shade and bad conditions in the sun especially on that type of climbing but it was like last day last go this is it um and i fucking did it and wow i don't know how i did it uh, you know it was full sun bad conditions the gear was in uh, i left the gear in um but i i did it and and i don't know how i did it you know it was like that i can't believe that i managed to pull it out the bag on that time and and so that as a result it was like a high point i just can't my book's called closer to the edge and that's one of the reasons it's called that i just i found the most rewarding adventures and experiences in life are the ones where you push as close to the edge as you possibly can but you don't fall over it you know the mm. ones where you, you you snatch victory from the jaws of defeat at the 11th hour and that i just can't imagine ever getting closer to the edge and succeeding than we did um, on that experience on the profit back in October 2010. <laughs> wow, incredible, incredible. You're such a good storyteller. My God, you make a great podcast guest. <laughs> I tend to go on a Every bit. time Sorry you stop about. talking, I'm like, oh shit, now I have to talk. I just want to keep listening to Leo. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, so then, so basically, <laughs> and it, wasn't, it wasn't a conscious decision, but that was the end of my Yosemite years. And I've only been back once since and it was a disastrous trip i got sick it was mm. after dean had died it was after stanley had died it was a rubbish trip and it was it wasn't intentional but i think i kind of knew that i wasn't gonna get any more yeah i would yosemite is wonderful there's so much to do there but i can't imagine ever getting more out of it than i had done already so mm. many awesome experiences with so many people and then to culminate it like that was like the only way i'm going to ever top that is to go further away you know yeah. go on bigger missions to and, and then there's a whole other kind of <laughs> there's a whole other league of epicness beyond that that was super epic but you're in yosemite you know you're right by the road it's sunny there's a rescue service like when you start taking that kind of experiences to remote places it's it's far more epic basically mm -hmm. less performance based i definitely haven't done anything anywhere near that hard but just the you know being far far away on major expeditions often in cold places 
or jungles or, or whatever. It's it's like it is another league. It's another level of kind of epicness and, and adventure. And I would say probably it, it definitely is like less of the performance thing, but um, they, they've been the most amazing experiences that, you know, particularly Antarctica and the Amazon and, and the Arctic ones that it's just, it's so epic. Just being there is epic. And then trying to do something which would be difficult in California, in mm-hmm. Yosemite, mm-hmm. when you're at the end of the world, somewhere where you know you're, it's kind of a survival situation all the time in Antarctica. You're all you're only like one step away from disaster when you're hanging out in base camp, and then trying to climb a a wall that's almost twice the size of El Cap. You know, like oh my god, this is like next level. <laughs> Man, um, I guess I should just check in with you because I want to talk about all those things. But I also we've been we've been going for almost two hours now, and I want to respect your time. How are you feeling? I'm fine, mate. Yeah, I just uh, hope you. Um, uh, I, I hope you can get some good stuff out of it. This is fantastic. No, this is great. Don't worry about that at all. Um, okay, I'll ask this question. I actually interviewed Dave McLeod earlier today. And, um, that was great. We, we talked a lot more about like, you know, more nutrition stuff and his experiments and training and all those sorts of things. Um, but I told him I was going to be talking to you and asked him if he had any questions for you. And you just mentioned, um, the accident in Sarah, um, on Saratoria a couple of times, uh, when you were young and he was really curious about that because he's had some injuries as well. He was curious, you know, you broke your ankle on Saratoria. Did that what effect did that have on you? Did that put a dent in your sense of invincibility? Was that a turning point for you? Funny enough, I've got Dave's book um, right here. I've just been reading. I just got it the other day. Uh, you know, nine out of 10 climbers make the same mistakes, oh, nice. um, which is really good, by the way. He's really good, done a good job of distilling a lot of that stuff that he's learned um, through experimenting on himself. It's really to the point. Um but did, yeah, did. I didn't break my ankle. I crushed my tailor's bone, like a broken ankle. I thought I'd broken my ankle. I wish I'd broken my ankle. That's like a you know, six weeks in a cast, six weeks of rehab, you're good to go. Um, a crushed tailor's bone is like a life-altering injury. Oh. It's uh, tailor's bone has a really poor blood supply. And when you really break it badly, um, they took a bone graft to rebuild it. And I was super lucky. It was that close to game over. Um, I was on crutches for nine months non-weight-bearing for six of those, non-weight-bearing on crutches for six months. You know, it's kind of like broken back scale of injury, like major life-changing one. And if it goes badly, the blood, the bone dies and um, it's called avascular necrosis and you have to get your foot amputated. Wow. <laughs> That's like the worst case scenario is, is really bad. Yeah. So, uh, so it was a totally life-changing accident. And yes, I, uh, I never... Um, it, it did change the way I went about things in a big way. Um, as I've touched on, I was kind of like gun ho going for it. Um, anything's possible. I'm indestructible. I'm afraid of nothing. And I, and I, and I screwed up really badly. I, I was, it's a long story cut short. I was trying to like onsite 513 R a thousand feet up an unclimbed route on the East face of Saratory underneath the Serac with a 20 mile approach over rough terrain with no rescue services. Um, it would have been a one mm. and I, and, and it was wet and it was a really inappropriate place to be applying those tactics. 
um it was a full-on mistake and it was i was it was a crack there was a crack right there it would have literally been a1 nailing and and a few moves later i would have been into another big 510 system and then we could have got higher up on the face and we almost certainly wouldn't have been able to free climb it anyway because there's snow and ice higher up and there's water everywhere and but I was obsessed with this kind of on-site free climbing, no points of aid, no, don't, you know. And once you use that first point of aid, the gloves are off. So mm. you put it off as long as you can. And then I took a big whipper and uh, and crushed my tailbone in the fall whilst I was falling. And then the rope went tight and I suddenly realized how much I'd screwed up because it's, mm. it's a 20-mile hike, you know, and if you can't how the, walk. How did you get out of there? All down the mountain, you know, for wow for two days on my hands and knees and then kevin thor carried me on his back for half a day and then some other climbers arrived with a stretcher and and carried out but i just remember that moment of clarity as the rope went tight my hands were all screwed up and my foot was pointing in the wrong direction and it really hurt and we were and i was just like oh you dick like mm. you know fair enough on el capitan you'd have to there's a rescue service it, it's not that hard to get down you're in california there's good hospital couple of hours away in the uk same story but out there you know in a super remote play it was really dumb and i just remember thinking you dick like why didn't i think of that five minutes ago Mm. why didn't i mate if you if you did break your ankle even like just as a normal break bad place to break your ankle You, you need to really inhibit when you're in those environments you have to like lower the tolerances so I super learned from the experience and I've probably never pushed as hard. I've definitely never pushed as hard into the unknown with such a high level of risk as I did on the profit, which was mm. just, it was like three months before that, 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 that stuff on the profit was three months before that happened. And um, however, that said, some of the stuff I've done much more recently, um, particularly the, the Spectre expedition is, it's by far the most hardcore stuff I've ever done by miles. Um, not in terms of like, you know, 513 on-site new routing, but just in terms of like the whole package of how gnarly it is to be out in the wilderness, pushing the limits, doing things that no one's ever done before in, in long trips and gnarly high consequence stuff. Um, so it's in many ways, it's way more hardcore than anything I did back then. Mm. But I feel like I'm doing it with a higher margin of safety because you've got so much more experience and so much more knowledge. And, you know, I've got kids now. So I feel that although it's way gnarlier, the risk tolerance is probably higher. Uh, you know, it's probably um, less dangerous because you're less of an idiot than you are when you're 21. <laughs> or at least I am, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Spectre, that's the uh, Antarctica expedition. Yeah, the second one, I've done two big trips to Antarctica. The first one was to Ulvitana in Queen Maudland, which was just a, a dream come true. The the northeast ridge of Ulvitana, which is one of the most amazing lines in the world. Obviously, I'm biased, but it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like as good as the nose. That wow. good. It, Rock quality yeah. is that good? I, I remember I've just seen a little footage of... Climbing in Antarctica. You don't that doesn't seem to bother you. You don't seem to care about rock quality that much. Yeah, it's uh you, you, you I mean the nose the nose wasn't like it is now when Harding first went up there, mm. man. You know, there's a lot of loose rock up there. You right. very rarely get cliffs of that scale, you're gonna come across some choss. You know, the bit below the great roof, 
was super chossy. There's still big blocks that come off that. Imagine what that was like when no one had been there before. Mm. You know, it's just a bit of newness wearing off. <laughs> yeah, but clearly good quality rock is better. But actually the Northeast Ridge is actually very good rock. It's a little bit crumbly. Some of the rock in Queen Maudland is really bad. It's really rotten granite. And we were expecting that. But actually that Northeast Ridge is, is really pretty damn good. Mm. Uh, and it's just epic. You know, the scale... The, the route was 1,750 meters long. <laughs> That's more than That's a mile. More, more than, than a mile. More than a mile of climbing. Of, wow. Of technical climbing. And none of it was fifth class. None of it, you know. There was a little bit of 5'9", five, 5'10", five, minus here and there, but it was climbing. You know, mm. The wall's a bit more than 1,000 meters vert, but because it's a ridge, you do a lot of extra climbing mm-hmm. um it was a thousand meters of climbing to get to the head wall you know? and then <laughs> and then there's a ginormous like 700 meter unclimbed head wall and it's this knife edge it's just so unbelievably epic and we made a high production value film on the wall and trying to do that is it's hard you can't I bet. Underestimate how much more difficult it makes a trip to try and come back with a good film it it really does it kind of doubles the challenge of of the mission it, it was epic i just when we first got there and looked up at it i was just like there's no fucking way this is going to happen you know that no way are we going to get up there and get alistair up there and like shoot it it's 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 like almost twice it's like al cap and half dome stacked on top of each other wow and you're already having an epic at the bottom because it's minus 20 and you know, you can get hit by hurricanes and you can get frostbite when you take a leak if you're not careful. And like, it, it was so epic. But anyway, it went really well. We killed it. We spent a lot of time up there. We fixed more rope than we would have done if we hadn't been making a film, but we did it. Um, no drama, no frostbite. And on the way down, I was like, well, that went well. I've got another idea. <laughs> Imagine if we like turn the dial another big notch and uh and we try and do something of that magnitude of epicness but instead of you fly into base camp you know we, we base camp right where the plane dropped us off right underneath this epic mine so although it's super remote like the closest hospital is in cape town which is three thousand oh, wow. miles away <laughs> different continent yeah but it's actually only an hour away by plane from the main logistics hub for the whole of that side of Antarctica, a big Russian base called Novo Lazarskia. Um, but there's this other mountain on the opposite side of Antarctica, which looks like Fitzroy, which is called the Spectre. And the closest logistics hub to that, the closest place, is more than a thousand miles away. Mm. And it, the closest humans to the Spectre are the ones in the International Space Station. <laughs> Second to that, it's the American base at the South Pole, wow. which is nearly, it's 350 miles away. Um, so to get there, you have to go via the South Pole to get to this mountain. That's It's like, it's the fucking end of the world. And whilst I was planning the first Antarctic expedition, I came across kite skiing. And these new school expeditions that have been happening in the last, it's not that new anymore. It's about 15 years people have been doing these insane transcontinental Antarctic journeys with power kites and skis and the sledge. Thousands and thousands of kilometers. On a good day, you can do 
you can do 200 miles with 200 kilos wow. you know in a day in a, in a in a session it's um and some and some of these guys are some bunch of norwegian guys um a couple of canadians have been doing these polar trips in this quietly away no one really gives a shit not many people know about it but you know full all the way across antarctica by the longest axis there's no way you could do it without kites it's really opened doors to a new way of traveling um but they've all been expeditions they've all been crossings you know the the point of the trip is to go from a to b uh, and i thought wouldn't it be cool to like use these relatively new uh, innovations to go climbing to you you know to rather than just going from a to b go from a to b to a mountain and then do a technical climb and then get out and the transantarctic mountains is this huge range that goes all the way across antarctica it's two and a half thousand miles long four times the size of the alps and it's one of the greatest mountain ranges in the world no one has ever been there on a climbing expedition except government-backed science trips with mm. c-130 and helicopters and millions of dollars of, of your taxpayers money um, <laughs> yeah uh, and and so we went and we did it we did it we we, we kited for 2000 miles across antarctica we set off with 215 kilos loads each three of us and we spent more than two months in the field and we and we climbed a couple of like pretty gnarly things in the middle <laughs> and it was it was so epic. It was like I, wow. I won't be disappointed if I never do anything more epic than that. I've still got a few ideas, um, <laughs> I know, but I, it was like the edge of, of what I feel was was I was capable of at that time. It's wow. We did um, the top speed of the trip was like forty five miles per hour. With, wow. With, 50 kilo sledge at that stage <laughs> uh-huh. you know we did we, at the end of the trip we had a real battle it was so hard and so it was minus 40 on the first day we got hit by storm on the first day we didn't get out of the tent for the first four days of the trip and then right at the end day like 52 <laughs> the conditions lined up and in the last part of the trip we did like 800 kilometers, like 600 miles of kiting in, in four, four days, just wow. you know, 200 kilometers a day, just like did almost half the trip in the last four days. And just perfect <laughs> conditions, wow. just creamy powder going at like 20 miles an hour, <laughs> 10 hours, you know? That's like, wild. Yeah. It was so wild. Man. Is it, is it like, is that part of it? Is that exhausting? I mean, is it, or is it just pure fun just to just to let the kite uh, no, do all that the was work? Fun. When the conditions are good, it's like, yeah, it was dreamy. And the surface was good. It was unbelievable. It mm. was like it was like an out-of-body experience. It was just so good. There was like 20 centimeters of powder, perfect wind, um, big kite, perfect, quite like, warm by Antarctic standards, just floating. And you don't really have to deal. You just the kite goes straight through your harness onto the sledge. I managed to smoke whilst we were going downwind <laughs> you get it's called a burble like there's no you, you're traveling with the wind uh. so that area in front of you there's no wind there's no no you know you're moving at the same speed it's quite a strong wind and yeah <laughs> buffing away like blasting across <laughs> Antarctica. two months into the trip you know self-sufficient self-supported trip um 
yeah that was amazing but we did we kind of uh look there it is i've got pictures of all these things all around we didn't do um what we went to do we, we went to climb the south spur of the specter which is like fitzroy it's a super proud big gnarly two thousand foot high alpine granite well at least i thought it was alpine granite but then when we got there and i got to the bottom of it and i had my hand on the wall and i was looking at it this thing that's so hard to get to and so expensive and i've been dreaming of for years and it's it's a wall it's not you know it's not an alpine it's not like 510 climbing it's like ooh, jesus that this is like a big wall and we didn't have a portal edge mm. and uh and we weren't equipped for like wall climbing, I thought we were going to be able to blast it in like Patagonia style, like a couple of days. Mm. But without weather forecasts in 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 that far south, you know, it's it's eighty six degrees south that mountain. You know, think about that. You know, the South Pole's ninety. <laughs> it's right way way down there. And when the weather gets bad down there, it's like, you know, it's a, it, you die, you die if you get caught out in those conditions without shelter and without you know what you need you won't survive and we didn't have weather forecasts the weather forecasts were useless so mm. we didn't we didn't even try i just didn't have a good feeling i was like you know what we are close enough to the edge right here yeah at the bottom. so we sneaked around the back and did it from the other side which was still pretty difficult but you know it was definitely like a full league below um, so it's still there and it's still unclimbed and it's like this super proud thing. Um, and so I, I would, I would like to go and have another pop at that and you, you could fly <laughs> right to the base of it, but it would be at least half a million dollars. Wow. Um, Crazy. Expedition to, to fly in and fly out at least. Um, whereas if you, if you kite in, it's half that, um, which is still crazy money, right? So wait, if you kite in, it's still like 250 grand to do an expedition like that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. It is. And it's super hard to raise that kind of money for such an arbitrary trip. You know, we didn't go to the South Pole. We didn't go from ice shelf to ice shelf. We didn't tick any of the big boxes. It wasn't a world first. It was, well, it was, but in a, such an esoteric way that no one mm. really gets it. Mm -hmm. um, much easier to like, raise finances for some kind of speed record or longer, you know, or something that people can get their head around, which I understand it's, it's so arbitrary. No one, I hadn't even heard of that mountain. <clears throat> even climbers have never heard of it. You know, it's, it's so random. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was, <clears throat> that was, that was probably my favorite trip just because it was so hard. <clears throat> There's one point where I say to GoPro, and I remember it when I said it, I was like, we, um, well, I wanted the hardest, I wanted the most hardcore trip ever. And I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking like hearing you describe all that, it's so otherworldly, so far from anything. It's almost like you'd have to go to another planet to have a more epic adventure than that. Like I'm, I don't know. Like, how does it get more epic than that in? I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it is, it is epic. Like the That's Antarctica crazy. is otherworldly. It's harsh, you know, it's so, <clears throat> it, it's beautiful, but it's really harsh. And it wasn't by chance that the, the next expedition I did after that was to the jungle, mm. to the Amazon rainforest. Cause the, um, 
you know, I did quite a few polar trips and I got really into that for a while. But A, it's fucking cold all the time. And I don't really like the cold. It's unpleasant. <laughs> oh. Um, and it's really, it's really lifeless. It's really like sterile and stark and the literally nothing lives. Mm. And we didn't see it. We saw one seagull. It was a, a, a Southern polar skewer and that was it in over two months. Mm. That was the only other, there's not even any lichen. There's no bacteria. There's no moss, definitely no trees or there's nothing that lives in that part of the world. Wow. And yeah. I was like, you know, like it's, it's amazing for adventure, but actually let's go right to the other end of the spectrum. And the, the next trip after that, two years later was to Mount Roraima in the Amazon rainforest, which just couldn't be more different, right? It's at the equator. It's in the Amazon rainforest. It's got a place with the highest biodiversity in the world. It's just full of life and energy. And you can, you can feel it, you know, in the jungle below the wall, it's just, it's a cacophony of sound and sight and color. And it was, it's awesome that, you know, the pursuit of rock climbing adventures can take you in these completely different environments, but it's the same passion. It's kind of the same sport, which has brought me there, but uh, it's so completely contrasting and diverse. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it is the same sport that brought you to all these places, but it feels like a completely different sport from what I do, you know, <laughs> in a big way. Um, I just, yeah, I watched that House of, House of the Gods film and it just looked like, I mean, it looked amazing. It looked incredible. The wall is breathtaking, the feature. Um, being on top of the Tapui with those cool shapes just looks incredible. But you guys are just like soaking wet the entire time. It just looks like you're like melting away with the film. it's a great movie but the um <clears throat> we had a laugh you know what i mean it, that like it was such a laugh we had we were there was a lot more kind of laughing and giggling and mm. it was it wasn't that hard of a trip okay um, but i think that's relatively speaking right that i think because like the la the trip I did before was that spectrum. That was so hard. It was like every day was like a fight for survival. And then this one, yeah, it rained a bit and it was a bit muddy. And but we had a bunch of stuff. You know, that airdrop worked really well. We we it was it was pretty casual. You know, we we had like uh, had everything we needed. Um, and because it's because uh, the days are really it gets dark. You, you have like twelve hours of daylight um, at the equator all year round. And you don't really want to be operating at night, certainly not in a rainforest. It's it's very easy to get lost in the jungle. And so you, you tend to, you know, you've only got that 12 hours of daylight to do stuff. So it's, you get a lot of rest, you know, mm. you, you, you're in. You, so it was, it was super fun. It was like a fun trip. Um, and once again, we, we were making a high production value film, which greatly increases the challenge. And, and on that one, you know, the real, we had a bunch of beginners with us. We had Anna, who's like a you know solid single pitch trad climber, but she'd never been she'd never been been on a multi pitch route. Never mind a, a wall. She'd never been on an expedition, so she was green as can be. And then, as if it's not challenging enough, going to the middle of nowhere with a hundred kilometer approach through virgin rainforest with no trail to climb a two thousand foot overhanging wall via a new route on top of a 3000 foot vertical slime forest <laughs> um, we brought two of the local boys with us you know the two of the akawayo guys the local guys who live there who who helped us cut the trail and guided us to the base of the wall 
So we brought two absolute beginners. They'd never worn harnesses before. We taught them how to Juma uh, on the first pitch and then brought them up the wall with us. Now, I've brought beginners up El Cap before, you know, because you kind of learn on the job, right? Clearly, they're not doing any leading. They're just jogging, rappelling, hanging out on portal edges. Um, but doing that on like a major expedition wall with indigenous people, we were a team of eight eight people when no you never climb a wall as a team of eight mm -hmm. you have to bring all your water and you have to bring all the food and like the logistics of climbing of the team of eight on el cap would be bad enough and doing that like on this <laughs> it was like it, it was it was it wasn't an easy trip logistically speaking it mm. was very complicated but waldo wilson and i they're a really, really good team. They're, Waldo and Wilson are a pair of badasses. They're really, really good. Wilson's like a world-class climber and a really badass rigger. Waldo is the best rigger rope manager in the world. He, he is. He's like next level technical rope systems. And then I'm quite good at managing all that shit and making sure everything's where it needs to be. And I can lead the hard pitches and I can do a bit of that. And you know, and then we had the guys making the film who were really good. And it just, it went like clockwork. You mm. know, it just, everything just Amazing. went as it was supposed to. You know, we airdropped all the stuff out the back of a plane into the jungle. <laughs> there was, um, well, I mean, there was four loads. So there was 16 haul bags. There was four loads of four haul bags strapped together. We threw them out the back of the plane into the middle of the rainforest, right underneath the wall with an untested parachute system made by the old Lodi rigger, Pete Swan, who was like the base jumping rigger during the Yosemite days. He was the guy that did all our base jumping rigging for Dean and Stanley and everyone during the, the Flying Monkeys era. Um, but totally untested system. And we put these, I had this friend of mine who's a genius make these. It's a bit like a an, av an avalanche transceiver, basically. Mm. These little devices, because we, we threw them out of the back of the plane into the jungle. How the fuck are you going to find them? You know, <laughs> dense rainforest there's this clever system where you hang the load 200 feet below the parachute so the risers are 200 feet long so the load comes crashing through the trees gets down to the ground before the parachute gets stuck in the tree mm. obviously if you a normal system it's going to get stuck in the top of a tree right 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 really yeah down. <laughs> yeah so the bag comes down and then we had this clever system with this radio transmitter that sends out it's actually the it's designed for putting on a drone this little radio transmitter that sends out a, a, a frequency with a number on a standard you know um uhf frequency that you pick up with a normal radio um it's to put on a drone so if you lose your drone you can find it, it, it and it's made by this russian kgb dude from moscow <laughs> weighs about five grams Anyway, that's that was the device, and it worked. We put this big battery system on it, and then you just get a radio, and you put it against your chest within a mile radius, as long as you've got line of sight, and it gives you a, a number between 1 and 99, and the, the interference of your body is like the hot, cold, hot, cold. So <laughs> you know, you, it, the number, the frequency will be stronger. The number will be higher when you're facing in the right direction. And it worked. And if it hadn't have done, we'd have been screwed. That was all the, <laughs> it was all the climbing gear. It was all the rope. It was yeah. everything. The whole expedition. Um, found it awesome. All. It was so sick, man. It was like, it's it's almost like make-believe. And there, there wasn't a backup plan. It's like we didn't have a load of gear. We didn't have a helicopter on standby. There was 
Yeah, we just threw it all out, went and landed in this random village with these boys and then brought some extra kit, see if any of them were up for it. They speak English in Guyana, so we had this connection. And uh, anyway, just, yeah, two of them were up for it. They helped us get up. We found the water, we everything. It's to climb the great northern proud of Mount Roraima, just to go and climb it in the way that I'm going to climb Mount Asgard this time with two bros who are good partners is a challenging thing to do. Then to make a film of that to a high production value is even more challenging, but then to scale it up to like that, bringing the locals and training them up and sharing the experience and having all those people and getting Anna to come and, you know, introducing her to this other world. And it was like, how much harder could you make it, you know? And, <laughs> and not only did we do it all, we free climbed the whole thing. We managed to free every pitch. When we looked up at it, I was like, oh my God, it looks like, it's so steep, you know, it's kind of, it's not quite as steep as the leaning tower, but it's like, mm. it's like that. You know, it's ridiculously overhanging. I didn't think we were going to stand a chance, but it wasn't that hard. It was like 512. There was wow. good features That's all cool. the way. You couldn't <laughs> see him. We weren't like split of cracks. There was just this, this line that went the whole way and it stayed dry because mm. if it had been less steep, we wouldn't have been able to free climb it because it rained every day. But it was so overhanging, it it stayed dry. It was just like, oh, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening to you thinking that if you hadn't found your way to rock climbing, you know the movie Apollo 13? <laughs> I feel like you'd be the guy that like, you know, has the duct tape and the thing and you're like figuring out how to make the square air filter work in like the circular hole or whatever. I feel like you just like some weird ingenious um MacGyvery, I don't know, but on like a NASA sort of level. I feel like that'd be I, you. I was always a big fan of the A team when I was a kid, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leo, this has been amazing, man. There's um you have so many stories, uh, so so many incredible accomplishments under your belt. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours, but um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We can always do another one of these, but I, I really appreciate it. I want to let you plug anything that you want to plug. I'd kind of asked you what would make you feel proud of this conversation, and um, I think we've spent most of this conversation talking about some of the bullet points that were at the top of your list um, tell me more about your book. That's new. That came out at the end of last year. I'd love to hear more about yeah. that and anything else you want to point people towards. Well, yeah, it's called Hold Closer to the Edge. It's, I don't think it's out in the States yet. Um, okay. okay. It's with a big publisher and they're kind of in control of all that. But um, but yeah, so all these stories are in there. It's on Audible too. I read it for Audible. So there's, Nice. And it's been pretty well. It's been going well. Like I'm getting really positive feedback from people. Apparently it's a real page turner which is good. You know, it's like a, a strong narrative. Um, House of the Gods is on uh, Amazon Prime, It's um, which is good. And then actually, I think probably the thing that would make me most proud is um, we, I've got a new film that's coming out very soon, uh, which is called 2.4. And it's a short film. It'll be free to view online. Should be out in a month or so. Um, and it's about kids' adventure. And it's... Mm. Uh, I, I haven't tried to make a film of those things before because filming is difficult. Um, but I, it really has dawned on me that, um, you know, the reason that Jess and I have been doing adventures with the kids is because we like going on adventures, but it has dawned on me that there's a kind of more powerful message in there, which is, you know, not that everyone should do big adventures with the kids, but I genuinely think everyone should do more adventurous stuff. Um, 
as families and as parents. And I think adventure is profoundly important um, to children. They they enjoy it and it's formative and it teaches them um, how to how to try hard, how to deal with fear, how to um, how to dig deep, how to work as a team. I'm a trustee of the Outward Bound, which is a big charity in the UK, which takes you know twenty five thousand underprivileged young people into into the world that I live in um, and gives them a taste of it. And I think it's really important. So, um, so yeah, I've tried to make a film of a fairly major uh, kids mission we did last year that captures a little bit of like the what and the why and the, trying to inspire people to go out and get after it. So 2.4 um, is about a mountain called Stettend in Norway. Should be out in a few weeks. So yeah. Awesome. It'll, it'll be out by the time this is out. So I will link to it for people. You can go watch it as soon as this episode is over. Go check it out. Where does the name come from? 2.4. Two point four kids. It's the nuclear family, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Of course. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Boy and a girl, you know, <laughs> all very Aryan looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and then I like to wrap up with this question: Is there anything that you wish people spent more time thinking about? Anything in addition to what you just shared? I mean, that was great. What you just shared, we could just end on that note too. But, um, I guess I mean clearly the. Uh, the environmental crisis but i think most of us do think about that a bit but one thing which we did touch on uh it's a really good idea to to travel into the developing world now and again because it's so easy for us in europe and america to forget just how little of the world is actually like this how hard most people there's a reason that you know people don't practice extreme sports and go on adventures in uh, in big chunks of the planet and it's because life is a epic you know just getting yeah. through the day is a major high risk uh adventure and feeding your family is like a major undertaking every single day um and i think it's a good it's good to travel in the third world or the developing world now and again just to remind yourself how privileged we are that's great that's great that's a great message to leave people with thanks leo this has been amazing, dude. You're so easy to talk to. This has been a blast. I love your stories. Let's do another one sometime. It's been super, super yeah, we'll fun. See. Anyone listens to it, it's a bit, a bit random. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I, I always find like it, it can feel like we jump all over the place, but uh, but that's how conversations are. And when you listen to it, it just works. It's just that's the magic of podcasting. It's Honestly, super I'm cool. I'm a bit sleep deprived because I've got to get all this stuff. Um, <laughs> on Monday, I've got to drive it to Heathrow Airport and. Like, so I was up till 3 a.m. this morning. I was, I went to bed at 3 a.m. and then I was up at 6 with the kids. So I only got like three hours sleep last oh, night. Oh, man. <laughs> really scheduled because I was yeah. like, oh, dude. I, I, uh, well, I you did great. You're, you're a natural, you're a natural interviewee. Um, it must be late. Is it, what is it, like 10 o'clock at night, 10 30? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll well, let well, you I'll go. Have to make a space sometime, dude, if we, uh, um, and we're going to spend a chunk of time in the States on that year out so uh you'll have to take me boulder and show me some of your best spots and let me in on some of the secrets i'd love it i'd love it yeah yeah that'd be amazing um yeah we'll stay in touch and i'll put this out in a couple months i'll check in with you before i do best of luck getting your permits and uh yeah. embarking on the next adventure adventure yeah i'll be excited to see what happens Good luck on that thing. Yeah, cool. Thanks, thanks for tracking me down, Stephen. Sorry if I was a bit elusive. I'm glad we managed to get there in the end. It's kind of perfect. Like you should be elusive to have on a podcast. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> it's very, very on brand. You're out there. You know, you're you busy need, living. Uh, any, any photos or whatever. The um, you know, for anything that I really like that uh, the portrait that you mentioned at the start. Yeah, <laughs> so glad. <laughs> that one would be great. I would love to use that. That'd be actually be a great episode cover. But yeah, I would love to get a handful of, of photos. I'll email you um, with okay. a follow up, but. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks for everybody for listening and sticking around with us. Hope you enjoyed that. And I'll link to all things Leo Holding in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, his book and all the movies and videos that we've talked about, um, as well as the most recent one, 2.4. So check those out. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Over and out. There we go. Over and out. Hey friends, a few quick reminders before you go. First thing, The Nugget is now on YouTube. We're sharing some of my favorite clips from the podcast in eight minute long videos. And they're super cool. I'm really proud of how these things are turning out. And the YouTube channel is a great way to sample other episodes before diving into a two hour podcast. And it's a great way to revisit some of your favorite nuggets from the show. Just search for The Nugget Climbing on YouTube. I also put a tremendous amount of effort into the show notes for every episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you ever want to learn more about a guest or watch the videos or buy the books we talked about or see the Instagram posts we talked about or whatever it is, you can find links to all of the things in the show notes for each episode at thenuggetclimbing.com, including links to all of my sponsors. Thanks again to all my sponsors for this episode. You can check them out in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. You'll find a list of sponsors for this episode and their coupon codes, or just scroll down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to have great deals on some of my favorite products. Again, just scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the list of sponsors in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Finally, if you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes that I've published so far with past guests from the show with more bonus episodes coming all the time. They're called follow-ups. Follow-ups are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You'll get access to all of those and ad-free versions of the regular episodes, as well as uncut video interviews if you prefer to watch the video. All of that for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. And there's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. I appreciate all of your support. I hope you're having an amazing week and we will see you next time. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it.